Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Off the Menu. I'm your host, Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House, here with a very pensive Charles Coulomb. Pensive? Pensive? You mean as in thoughtful? Yeah, thinking a lot of thoughts, you know, contemplation, pondering the world. Seeing it from my remote perch high atop the Austrian paradise. Not as good as a Tumblr House building, but it's not bad. No, well, it's older anyway. And the the uh, the best part of it is that the plumbing of the Tumblr House building is better than the plumbing here. The good part of being in Austria is it's yeah. bad. Pl- it has bl- bad plumbing. It's not all of Austria, of course, but some parts of Austria are pretty bad plumbing. Oh, okay. Well, it's an old country. Yeah, older than uh, older than all Arcadia and Monrovia combined. That's true. Yeah. So, what's so, new? What is new? Well, let's see. It is Easter week. Um, by the time uh, our beloved fan club out there in television land see this, it will be the Monday after Mercy Sunday. Oh, not our patrons. Our patrons get early access. Don't forget that. Patrons get early access, but for the hoi polloi, they're going to have to wait till the day after uh, Mercy Sunday, which is okay because, you know, we'll be merciful. But uh, coming sort of a high coming down off Easter. Uh, the bunny was good to me this year. Uh, lamb uh, was the order of the day in this part of the world. The um, they make a big deal about Easter in Austria, uh, and one of the customs they have on Holy Saturday is that just as anywhere else, uh, the Good Friday uh, service ends with an empty tabernacle and so forth and with the Blessed Sacrament bought elsewhere. But that elsewhere here is in the form of a tomb. And this is a common custom in Catholic Europe and other parts, Spain, Spanish America, and other places. But you'll have on a sort of side altar a statue of the dead Christ uh, with flowers and all that, as though he's laid out in death. But then over him, the Blessed Sacrament and a monstrance. So you're at once venerating the image of the dead Christ and adoring the living Christ at the same time. Uh, and then the uh, the churches are surrounded by what are called Ostermarkt and Easter markets, which are the spring equivalent of the Christmas markets, so they don't last as long. And that was really, really a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, the, the way they mingle, uh, even now, even with all the changes and drivel and all that, the way the faith is still very much a part of everyday life in this part of the world is is wonderful. It's not what it was 50 years ago, but it's still much more than we have at home. That's that's good. That makes me happy. Good. <sighs> it's a little bit of schmaltz for you. Yeah. You know, well, been, that, that's what we, you, you're our go-to source for schmaltz. I, I am it. I am. I am the one for gooey coziness. <laughs> I don't know if I like it in Nob's terms, but yeah. Well, I, I'm not entirely sure the man who called and said that I was the one to go to for Schmaltz meant it as a compliment, but I've chosen to take it that way. Because, you know, in a cold world, you need a lot of Schmaltz to keep you warm. Uh, this past week, the world has gotten a lot colder. Yes. Yes. Uh, we have a lot of questions. Uh, on those new happenings. Um, 
Okay, so I guess, so announcements first. We got new internet for Charles, which is great. Uh, so hopefully there's a lot less uh, editing required. Uh, I was kind of tired paying our whole editing team overtime. You know, I, I'd like to redirect those funds elsewhere. You know what I mean? Uh, we yeah, have a lot of projects. We have a lot of yeah. projects. Uh, like the fact-finding trip to the Bahamas, I know. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, we've been yes. over this last year. I mean... Research and development, Charles. Thoughts. Yeah. Thoughts. One of the great books, Leisure, the Basis of Culture by <laughs> Joseph Pieper, right? He talked about um, what is work. No, I'm serious. He, he talked about what is work. Re- every, anyone who reads this book, this Catholic book, Ignatius Press, shout out to Ignatius Press. He, 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 uh, he talked about whether thinking qualified as work because thinking, in a sense, he said, is work. Yes, I know. Philosophizing. I, I know. You know, years and years ago, when I found out that Henry David Thoreau was able to live on Walden Pond because his grandmother paid all his bills, I wrote to my grandmother, pointed this out to her, and suggested that if she paid all my bills, I could sit around all day and think deep thoughts like Henry David Thoreau. And her response was that if I were capable of thinking deep thoughts like Henry David Thoreau, she would very happily pay all my expenses. Oh. Unfortunately, dot, dot, dot. Sad. I thought that was unkind. Grandmas are usually nicer than that, no? Do you really think my grandmother on either side would have been a nice, schmaltzy grandmother? Well, not on your mom's side. I don't know. uh, So that is grandma on your mom's side? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. okay, that makes sense. I can see yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, my uh my favorite quote of hers actually wasn't that, although it's 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 up there. Uh they were having a party of some kind and someone did something on tour, and I don't remember what it was. But a fellow came to tattle on the offending person and said, uh, did you see what Mr. So and so did? It was terrible. And Nana said, my good man, there's only one thing worse than committing a faux pas in public. What's that? Noticing it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well. <clears throat> well, you know, I, I think what, what she annoyed her was the guy's glee in reporting it. Oh, right. It's a little bit like my uh, my dad's line, you know, those who are easily scandalized generally enjoy it a whole lot. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, it's awful. Tell me more. Then what happened? Ooh, sinful. Then... <laughs> Ooh, sinful. <laughs> Ooh, just so terrible. And then what happened? <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, if you find yourself in that position of feeling that way, don't do that. Stop it. The scandal is not necessarily what you're seeing. It could be you. <laughs> wow, that's good. Um, yeah, that's very true. Okay, so are we are we ready? I'm ready. Well, it depends. What do we? What do you got for me? Okay, so obviously uh, the first thing to talk about. Everyone wants to know uh, your thoughts on the fire at Notre Dame. Well, I'm very much against it. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I thought it was we're, a bad idea. We were worried idea. about that. Yeah, we were worried about it. Yeah, but um, I, 
actually, my biggest feeling is relief uh, in the sense that they saved the most important things. The crown of thorns. I haven't heard about the, uh, the true cross, the nail, etc. But from what I could tell, and they, they were unaccounted for days ago, but no one said whether they've turned up. But I've noticed that news has kind of dried up about what, about what they've been finding. The last I heard was that, in point of fact, it was only the central section around the new altar that was devastated because when the, uh, when the tower fell, uh, it fell in. Yeah, I saw the pictures. I think right. most people have seen the pictures, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, left, the, uh, it left the high altar intact. Uh, it left, I mean, there's a lot of water damage, surely. But by and large, considering the, the uh, horrific action, it got off pretty light. Um, I mean, the, the, the framework of, uh, of wood between the ceiling and the, uh, and the roof was destroyed. The roof itself was destroyed. Um, and we don't have trees of that thickness to replace them with, although they, there are elsewhere in Europe, if not in France. I mean, there's over a billion dollars already for to repair it. The real uh, problem now is going to be the nature of the restoration. Yeah. Ideally, they would just clean it up, uh, replace the tower, the uh, the, the uh, tower and back, and call it a day. But you know that every modernist around, and I mean that in terms of architecture, would love to get his hands on Notre Dame to screw it up. And one thing you learn when you travel around Europe is the glee that people take in putting in incongruous elements into beautiful old churches. This would be a godsend to the really stupid and moronic. Now that having been said, the man they put in charge of reconstruction is a, a devout Catholic, whatever that means, also a general uh, in the French army. So the, I, we could at least hope at this juncture, that between that and the fact that a lot of the money has come in from people with taste, uh, that perhaps the uh, morons will be staved off. It was interesting that Macron initially said that it would be restored in accordance with France's new multicultural society. And the outcry was so tremendous that he actually deleted it from his, uh, from his uh, Twitter. Wow. So I, I hope that the good sense of the Frenchman will prevail. We'll see. So they got a general to restore it? How, how is that a qualification? Well, I mean, the thing is, you've got to bear in mind how divided French society is. Uh, the, uh, the military tend to be much more Catholic than the other parts of the government. Well, I mean... Um, Wait, well, see, well, how, I'm how about an engineer? Like, like, I mean, that's what, like, what about like a devout engineer? Or, or They're not like, that common. Architect? They're not, uh, that, they're not common. that common. No, um, and the the uh, and as I say, the French government is a strange thing. The state apparatus elements of it are, are, are traditionally more devout than others. The military certainly is, uh, and the, and having a military man in charge would tend to uh, give more confidence to the devout Catholics whom they expect to get the uh, the bulk of the money out of. Okay, so you you sound confident. I mean, are are you confident? I I, I don't. I wouldn't say confident. I'd say hopeful. 
Okay. Confident would be too strong a word, but I'm hopeful that a combination of things. I mean, you remember that the churches in France are owned by the state. That is all the ones built before 1905 are owned by the state. And I know that in many particular cases, uh, you even had when the changes came along because they had to be approved by the town council. The priest might want to, you know, completely gut his church and build a, uh, a Vatican II monstrosity. But if the city hall wasn't interested, it wasn't happening. And there were many, many examples of communist mayors across France refusing to allow the ruin of their churches simply to spite the priest. I mean, it, it's it's a weird setup. Okay. But... That's why I say I'm hopeful, but there's so many factors at play that at this stage, I, I couldn't begin to predict the outcome. Okay. Uh, what do you think about, um, tangentially, what do you think about the proliferation of church burnings in France? Well, I, can't, I, uh, I would hesitate to say that, uh, uh, I would hesitate to uh, say that uh, the Muslims are responsible for it all. But it certainly is becoming popular. And people being people, life being what life is, um, it will eventually, it'll eventually, I think, uh, produce a backlash. And if the authorities do not do something to stop it, people will take these things in their own hands. And we know that when that happens, it's usually very unpleasant. But if that's the case, the fault will lie, to be honest with you, neither with the perpetrators nor with the vigilantes who string them up, but with the government that refused to do anything in the first place. Okay. Uh, okay, well, that this leads into um, the Sri Lanka bombing of the Easter, mm. of the Easter worshippers. Yeah. Easter worshippers, all those Easter worshippers were killed. Who, who do I get to pistol whip who came up with that? Some think tank, at from probably from the Washington Post or, or the New York Slimes, something like okay. that, I'm sure. For the more moronic amongst us, we do not worship Easter. Easter is an island. Easter is a holiday. Easter is the Feast of the Resurrection. It is not a deity we worship, not like mammon, whom so many of our moronic rulers worship. No. Go ahead. They were Catholics. They were Christians. Say it. Name it, claim it, tame it. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Don't be afraid, little munchkin rulers of ours. Don't be upset or worried that if you mention the fact that Catholics are murdered in cold blood, don't think we're suddenly going to rise up and push you out of your uh, plush homes. You'll still be safe. There is an interesting headline from spectator.us, uh, which asks an interesting question. What's the, that? The headline says, we condemn the ideology behind Christchurch. Why didn't we do the same after Sri Lanka? Well... I can't tell for sure, of course. But thinking again of our moronic masters who uh, determine so much of these things, um, and I'm not saying being a moron, a, a moron is a bad thing. It's inconvenient if you happen to be in charge of a moron. But still, 
I've lived that way most of my life, so I'm used to it. You know, having such having such wonderful people rule my life for me. So I, I'm not I'm really not upset by it at all. It's what I know. It's what I'm used to. I'm used to morons ruling me. Well, and I, you know, I, I, I theoretically I've got a slight problem with it, but in terms of everyday life, bah. Uh, I suspect it's because on a, on a certain level they agree with them. I mean, remember, and I, and I, I'm, I'm hastened to say that I'm not painting all Democrats with this brush because it's a mindset that transcends mere political party names. You'll find many, many Democrats, particularly the poor and more ignorant sort. I don't mean moronic. I mean ignorant. Moronism is something I reserve for the rich and powerful. But uh, the more uh, the more ignorant amongst us um, it, aren't touched by this. But I suspect that on a certain psychological level, a lot of the folk who are dominant in our society uh, feel a certain nagging sympathy for the viewpoints of those who did the bombings in Sri Lanka. Why is it nagging? I think they would have a hard time admitting it to themselves, but I think they do. What is that rooted in? Well, I, I mean, think it's rooted... I mean, to me, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. We, we have been systematically programmed to hate Christianity, and we've been systematically programmed that all Eastern religions are, are nice and non-judgmental. Yeah. And so therefore, Christianity judgmental, bad. Eastern religions non-judgmental, good. Yeah. And of course, that, that in itself is rooted by a phenomenon very specific to the generation of 68, the boomers, etc. And that is a hatred of the culture and tradition they inherited, which was all bound up with Christianity. I mean, basically... Uh, in a certain sense, churches being blown up or like daddy being shot again. Something they never had the guts to do while daddy was alive. Especially because daddy was off a World War II vet. I mean, I've always thought it was kind of funny that uh, my generation dubbed our parents the greatest generation after years of treating them like garbage. <laughs> Guilt is a wonderful thing. Uh, but nevertheless, we continue to trash everything most of our parents stood for. And so I think instead of calling them the greatest generation, uh, we should admit that um, on some level we hate their guts. In the history of the United States, has that happened to some extent which, with every subsequent generation? Not like this. Not like this. I mean, see, one thing is that with the onset of the 20th century, you had the whole concept of youth and teenagerhood being a separate thing in and of itself and unto itself. Before that time, young people were simply adults in training. And remember, before technology and all that, life was hard, you know. The average life expectancy wasn't that high. 
and as soon as you were able to do so, you you were working. I mean, they had children working in factories, for heaven's sake. 12-year-olds, 8-year-olds, in factories, in mines. That that was what things were like in the 19th century. Uh, and people in that position didn't have time to worry about, you know, how does American youth feel? How do the young people feel? You know what? Here's your shovel. Get to work or starve. Your call. Not my idea of a good time, by the way. I'm very happy that we did away with child labor. And I'm, I'm glad that we developed sufficient resources to be able to allow the people of my generation to have a pleasant childhood and a pleasant youth. Uh, but that had its downside. And its downside is that it produced a generation that now dominate us, my generation. Mind you, I'm, I'm barely a member of it. But that's that's the great irony for me, you know. The uh, the boomer uh, generation, the generation of 68, is 44, 1944 to 1964. I was born in 1960, so, you know, I get the short end of the stick no matter what I do. The non-boomers will hate me because I'm a boomer, and the uh, the older boomers will hate me because I'm sure not one of them. <laughs> Who determines 64? Like, how do you come up with that? That seems like such a long cry from 1944. Well, it is. It's 20 years. But I, the average idea of a generation is that it spans 20 years. Oh, I didn't. Interesting. So, so okay. 64 to 84 is X. And then 84 to 94 to 2004, I guess that would be the millennials. 84 to? To 2004. Wow, I'm right on the cusp then between x and um, millennial yeah so i'm 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 the oldest millennial there is yeah pretty in a, in a weird way january 1984 i am spearheading the millennial group wow you led them in wow i didn't know that i didn't know i was millennial i was always kind of like trapped between two worlds i felt but um do you feel privileged as the oldest I the world's oldest millennial? i do feel very privileged I, I, uh, as the world's oldest living millennial. Uh... <laughs> okay, now I don't feel privileged, actually. That, that, now you sort of flipped it on his head. Uh, no, I, I think this is wonderful. Uh, no, I don't like this anymore. Let's move on. <laughs> we're, we're visiting with Vincent Franchini, <laughs> the world's oldest living millennial, in the quiet of his own home. <laughs> Mr. Franchini lives out his days. <laughs> I don't like this. I don't like this at all. Are you on Geritol? How are those uh, uh, golden golden age discounts working out for you? (laughs) Well, would you rather be the world's oldest living millennial or the world's youngest exit? Ooh. Gosh. That's a tough question. So you're still on the cusp. Yeah, see, I, I, I can't even answer that question because I don't I really don't like Generation X either. <laughs> well, then it doesn't matter one way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to be kicked or, uh, or socked? Your call. I mean, 
I, I don't mind the millennial generation. Just I don't want to be the absolute oldest. I don't want to be, you know, grandpa millennial. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I love that. I don't grandpa like, millennial. I don't like that at all. Don't say be grandpa Smurf. It's great. <laughs> 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 okay, Grandpa. That's what. Well, see, this explains a lot. I mean, you become sort of father confessor to a host of millennials. You're the oldest. I guess so. That's beautiful. Embrace your fate. God has given you an identity. Hold it close. You're taking too much joy in this. Uh, <laughs> I'm affirming you. You're affirming. Absolutely. Of course. Great. That's great, Charles. This is wonderful. <laughs> okay, next question. Okay, Grandpa, what's next? Next question uh, is on Kate Smith and her song "God Bless America," which teams like the Yankees are are uh, starting to remove because she's turns out she's racist. Um, so, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I could sum them up. I'll, I'll enlarge upon this in a second, but I could sum them up easily. Well, what to Kate Smith? No, to the uh, to the worthless uh, Yankees. My, by the way, I don't back you anymore. I'm not going to back the Dodgers, but I was born in New York, and all I can say is take a long walk off a short pier. <laughs> you know what's ironic is that the song she made famous that they're not going to use anymore. They're going to ban, and they tore a statue down in Philadelphia which makes it even better. But the uh, the song she made famous, God Bless America, by Irving Berlin, who, because he also wrote songs with racially charged lyrics, is probably going to go on the ash heap soon. Um, but the introduction is ironic in, the, in terms of what we're doing now. As the storm clouds gather far across the sea, let us swear allegiance to a land that's free. Let us all be grateful for this land we love. Well, you get the idea. And you know, I cannot think, I mean, our modern moment of iconoclasm falsifies everything about that song. Maybe we shouldn't sing it anymore. Maybe America needs a song about being stupid. I'm so glad I'm a moron. I really, really am. I don't have brains to stick together because I should be a yam. Uh, I mean, why not? It's it's a bad tune. The words don't quite scan. Kind of like us. Um... I cannot think of anything more abysmally stupid. Why, they say? She sang songs with racist lyrics. Okay, let's parse this a little bit. They had words like Piccaninny and so forth, which are objectionable to our pure ears that don't mind foul language and certainly don't mind the, uh, the huge number of black children that are aborted every bloody year. We don't mind Planned Parenthood, especially targeting blacks and other non-whites. We don't mind that. I'm gonna do. That's not racist. That's wonderful. I'm gonna do. We, 
I'm gonna do a compare and contrast. So that song is bad, but yes. you know it's funny to it's fun to listen to the radio to to under to, to see what's going on. Um, one of these songs that you hear, it's probably top of the charts. This from this Ariana Grande, I guess. Break up with your boyfriend because I'm bored. Which is like I guess sleep with me or something. Ah! Because so that's good. This is great. That's good. This is great stuff. This is who we are. That's yeah. bad. This is good. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, Let's just roll in the mud like the dogs. That's who we are. I mean, look, the other, I mean, quite apart from the fact that as a person, Kate Smith uh, was a devout Catholic. There was never a whisper of scandal about her. Uh, of course, she was a pretty big woman. <laughs> that, 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 uh, but. There was never any scandal about her. And, you know, the songs that everyone's objecting to, black singers sang. Right. Um, I mean, what drives me crazy in all of this stuff is the presumption that we moderns are in a position to sit in judgment on the past. We are not in a position to sit in judgment on ourselves. We are a pack of the most pusillanimous, cowardly, nasty, bloodthirsty, uh, down and deep, dirty and cheap in the street morons that ever crawled the earth. And we have the audacity to look at the people who came before us and judge. Let's start with ourselves. Maybe when our hands are no longer bloody with infant's blood. Maybe then. But until then, until we stop profaning the marriage bed, until we stop uh, getting confused about gender, I don't know what I am, until that moment, how about if we've got a problem with the past, how about we shut up and try to improve the present? How about that? Well, you, you, you clearly don't understand, Charles. I mean... You're looking through an old, archaic, uh, moral perspective, a lens. We see we're looking through a new lens now, and through this new special, you know, set of binoculars or glasses, we judge all things, you know, anew. And so we have a different moral code now. We don't have these this old, ancient, archaic one based on um, superstition. You know, the Muslims will eat you. What? Why? Because you're nothing. There's nothing to you. Hollow men. The Muslims know what they believe. They believe what they know. And they will eat you for dinner, oh modern man. You can either return to the faith that made you great, or you can go where you deserve, the ashpin of history. I mean, our Lord said it very clearly. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its savor, it is good for nothing but to be emptied out and stamped upon by men. Yeah. Well, the only the only use for Western civilization, and that includes the United States, is as a vessel for the faith. That's all. That's the only reason why we've had all the blessings we've had, all of the mental quirk, shall we say, that made us such leaders in science and technology, came to us, believe it or not, from habits of religious thought, specifically Catholic religious thought. 
slash orthodox. Um, the the great synthesis of uh, Western philosophy, classical philosophy, Greco-Roman philosophy, um, Roman law, and uh, the faith came to us from Palestine. Those three things combining with the um, energy of the Germanic and Slavic and Celtic tribes, they created this wonderful thing called Western civilization, which our worthless scumbag owners are trying to dismantle as quickly as they can. The problem is that in, uh, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. There will be one to all of this nonsense. The problem is that the longer it takes and the more uneducated our people become with every passing year, the nastier and stupider that reaction is going to be. I mean, it's bad enough to take down a statue of Kate Smith. It's worse, to my way of thinking, if the person trying to do so gets shot dead. But that's the kind of thing that will happen one day if this nonsense doesn't stop. But I'm afraid that's in the hands of our masters, not us. Who comes up with this kind of stuff? Like, is there someone whose job it is? It's like, okay, we need you to dig up, you know, these old things that we consider racism or whatever, um, like what they did with John Wayne, where he's uh, kind of, I guess, being a chauvinist or I forgot what he what he did. But, you know, it, well, it's, I, like, it's like this stuff has been here. It's always been here. Yeah, I, but well, it's not as I don't think that there's a uh, that there's a central office there, at Dimwit Central, that sends out uh, you know commands to its worthless agents. But the mindset in academia, media, and uh, most of the ranks of government in different places in the in the country and elsewhere overseas are such that, that these days everyone's trying to ferret out garbage all the time. You only study an historic figure to try and destroy him. So, I, I mean, I and I could be wrong. It could be Dimwit Central is better organized than I think. The last thing you really want are morons to know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I mean, it's, it's, it is, in academia in particular, studies now are meant to be destructive. They're constantly looking to attack structures of power and blah, blah, blah. If they really want to attack structures of power, they'd attack themselves. Because universities are nothing if not structures of power. But you find with these sorts of people that their criticisms always, for some reason, stop short with themselves. Of course. Of course. Yeah, no, um... Uh, Wealthy I, people are, are evil unless they're George Soros. Yeah, my favorite one is, um, in terms of the criticism, is uh, what they they uh, attack Trump for for you know always talking about fake news, and they, they they quote Thomas Jefferson like, oh, it's you know, it's tyrants who you know assault the free press, and and lash out against it. Uh, 
which, which is funny, the media is calling itself the free press, um, while they're lockstep, uh, you know, in, in coordination in their attacks against the president. I mean, where no president has ever been attacked that violently. I, I, I mean, perhaps... And that, unrelentingly. And unrelentingly, like it's... Well, if they were truly a free press, you wouldn't have to pay anything to listen to them, would you? That's true. But, See? Uh, the notion that it's a free press is a joke. Well, of course it is. And the, the problem there, too, is that actually there is a place, a real place in society for a free press. It'd be wonderful if we had one. Yeah. Um, but we don't. And again, the because what happens? Without a free press, everything gets, uh, information becomes nothing but a bunch of uh, contending voices, all of them wanting to distort reality to their own particular view. But we have not had a true free and impartial press in my time. Uh, I mean, even uh, you know, the Los Angeles Times, which, you know, is the, the most wonderful uh, it's the paper best. that ever oh, existed. so good. Yeah. It doesn't get better. Well, my joke about it is that it went from being stupidly conservative to being stupidly liberal without ever being intelligent. And that's over, you know, 130 years of... Uh, that kind of thing. Um, the the New York Times, of course, is 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 the New York Times. I mean, it makes the L.A. Times look uh, look absolutely decent. Uh, the networks. I mean, the last time I watched CNN for any great length of time was the 2016 presidential election. And that was that was just for fun. Me I too. mean, I, I had a great time that night. That was, you know, there are three things. There, there are three to me. There in my lifetime, there were three truly, sort of like, where were you that day? There are three. Mm. There are three things. It was, um, the Trump, the Trump election. Like, what were you doing? Like, like you remember the whole day? Yeah. It was a, for me, it was the Trump election. Obviously, nine eleven. Yeah. And then for me, the one that might surprise a lot of people, uh, but for me, it is actually O.J. Simpson's Bronco Chase. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> Everybody was – I mean, like, this was uh, – people forget that, how much of a – like, this was before social media. Like, you didn't have, like, O.J. trending on Twitter or whatever. And so no. this was a very rare experience for everybody to be tuning in and everybody lining the streets with, like, O.J. signs and <sighs> – that well, was an event. Well, if you remember, though, back in those days, too, if there was any kind of high-speed chase, people were glued yeah. to the sets watching them. Uh, there was a, a wonderful television program, which you can now watch on YouTube. Not that that's a plug. I have no financial interest. But it was called It's Like You Know hmm. about a New Yorker who comes to L.A. It only lasted two seasons, but watch it. It's very, very funny. But at one point, at one uh, at one point, the New Yorker is with his LA friends, and they're watching a high speed chase. And he comes in, he sees everyone's glued to the set. What are you? What What are you doing? It's a high speed chase on. Um, has anybody ordered any food? No, no, no. Watch the chase. Watch the chase. And he shakes his head. He call and he calls this Chinese restaurant. You switch to the Chinese restaurant. 
And the Chinese lady on the phone says, why you call the high-speed chase? Call back Manova. Click. (laughs) So that, I mean, it's important to remember that those things were, again, the pre-Twitter age. Yeah. Those things were a big part of our of our culture in yes. SoCal. Yes. Um, I would say for me, it wouldn't have been the, the Bronco chase. I give you the first two. Yeah. But I would say when uh, uh, Pope Benedict was elected. Really? Well, you, okay. in two thousand five. Okay. Interesting. Uh, the reason being, well, a couple of reasons. One of them being that I was uh, working for ABC News then. Yeah. And I had to be on call for it to happen. And I was so dreading the outcome because I was sure that it couldn't be Ratzinger. Right. It just couldn't be. So as soon as the white smoke comes, the studio calls me and says, you've got to get down here right away because the white smoke, they're going to be announcing. So I'm driving down, I've got the radio on, and then I heard that it was Ratzinger or that he was taking the name Benedict Sixteenth. Wow. And I just started singing Non Nobis Domine all the way to the studio. Uh, oddly enough, I didn't have the same butterfly feeling when uh, Francesco was elected because I was sure that it was going to be either Scola or Welle. And I had absolutely no problem with either one. And I was wrong. I was completely wrong. Yeah. But it's funny and so, I mean, that day is just a day of infamy I try not to think about. But the the election of Cardinal Ratzinger as Pope Benedict, which I was dreading the outcome of that conclave. Yeah. I'd have it crowned with such a marvelous, marvelous outcome. I'll never forget the joy I felt that day. Never. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember you did uh, you did John Paul II's funeral for ABC. I remember watching that. I sure did, and that uh, you know that was probably the high point of my uh, my days as a media person. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the decline started soon thereafter. <laughs> but and you know the funny thing is that I knew. I, the thing that, that blew me out of the water at ABC, I knew I was going to do it. I absolutely knew it. Didn't stop me. What? Oh. <laughs> well, because I what what happened was that uh, after the uh, after the uh, the Pope uh, was elected, and they had me on for another program, not as an announcer, but as one of the talking heads. I forget the name of the program, but it was a ABC Sunday thing. Uh, where, you know, you've got like five or six talking heads from around the country. And one of the uh, anchors is in Washington, one of them in New York, and they're all in separate studios. Um, and I was asked, uh, Mr. Coulomb, uh, what do you think of the late John Paul II's view of America? Now, I knew that the trained monkey was supposed to say, well, you know, the poor dumb Polak, he really didn't understand how wonderful our democratic ways are and how perfect we are. I mean, not exactly in those terms, but that was supposed to be the impression I was to give. I knew exactly what I was supposed to say. It's not what I said. What I did say was, well, you know, we Americans are a very provincial people. We don't really understand ourselves very well, let alone foreigners. 
Whereas this was a man who had had a real life, such as those of us in the media rarely have. You know, he'd, he'd been a, a miner, he'd been an actor, he'd been in the resistance against both the Nazis and the communists. And he had an education, the like of which none of us media folk generally have. I mean, he's incredibly brilliant. So I would say he probably had a much better view of us, a much more accurate view of us than we do ourselves. Well, it was a live feed, but all over the country. And the look on those two guys' faces was so cold. And I knew that was it. And I knew it would be it. I bear them no ill will to this day. And as soon as it was over, the cameraman, whom I'd worked with all through, you know, the, the, the papal death and the election and the and uh, the funeral and all that, he, um, he said to me, he was black, and he said, uh, Mr. Coulomb, that was great. You ain't never going to work here again, but that was absolutely great. <laughs> did he really say that? He really did. <laughs> he really said exactly that. <laughs> you know, and we both laughed ironically. <laughs> we both laughed ironically, but, you know. <laughs> wow. And, as my late father used to say, if you can't beat them, harass them. <laughs> wow. So. So that was that. I mean, was so so it was worth it, I guess. You you self-immolated on live national TV just for the look on everyone's faces. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, come on. What good is life if you're not willing to toss the dice? <sighs> I can't believe the cameraman was that blood. Like, like it was just like... <laughs> it was black. He has the right to be. Oh. No, I'm serious. I mean, one of the great things about being black in America is that you have more freedom of speech than a white man has. And I, I, I tell you honestly, I... Um, I'm very grateful to them for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. they, um, no, it, it, um, you will not, um, you'll not find a, a better source of honesty than a man in his position, um, seeing the great and the glamorous do their stupid stuff. Um, and it, because, you know, again, He's protected from the uh, bias color, from uh, the dangers of telling the truth. And I... Absolutely. That's how we were able to have a traditional Latin mass in uh, in L.A. Archdiocese during the dark days of the 90s. Did it, 80s too? Was it 80s, 80s too. 80s too, yeah. And 80s too. Yeah. Yes, uh, it's true. And I, I tell you, I, I do not begrudge at them this much yeah. it's a gift from God and I, I uh, you know and uh, of course I'd, I'd worked with him all this time and we had a we had had a great great time joking and all that all the way through so when the, when the time of my Waterloo came 
You never told me that. You know, I you never told me this story, and I didn't even know you did this. I'm surprised you didn't really um, broadcast that. That it's like, oh, hey, everybody, I'm going to be on national television. Well, no, I didn't. I said I talked a little bit about it. your brother was actually the mastermind of it. To tell you the truth, yeah. Uh, uh, back then, you could still, you know, we would still come down from the penthouse occasionally. Before you did the whole Catholic Howard Hughes thing. Yeah, that yeah. But yeah, no, I I really uh, I, it was a great time. I really enjoyed it, uh, except for the the mad dash to get there before the uh, before the uh, uh, white before the announcement, which yeah. uh, they would send a car for me, a, dr- a chauffeur driven car every uh, every morning to oh, take wow. me to work. Nice. Uh, that was fun. Okay. All right, one more kind of a, I guess a quasi news item. Um, so again, I, uh, so as I perhaps broadcast an episode or two ago, I just joined the Knights of Columbus. I'm still a, a little first degree peasant, so I'm still being, um, you know, shown the ropes and, and you know, uh, I'm still learning the situation, uh, man. But I've recently um, discovered. Um, sort of an issue within the Knights that I think a lot of people are interested in, uh, which is the um, uh, the Sup- Supreme the Supreme Knights Council is uh, changing the uh, the regalia. They're updating it. They're modernizing it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it up on the screen to illustrate the change, the before and after change. So we've got the old uh, version on the left, and then we have the new version on the right. Now, Charles, you're fourth degree, right? You're you're, you're a big sure. shot. Sure, you're a big shot. <laughs> I'm hardly a big shot. I am fourth degree. I am not, never have been a member of the color guard. Um, probably it's because I couldn't commit to it, uh, time wise. But I would have been proud to wear the uniform then. Right. So, so what do you think of 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 the switch here? I think it's horrible. I think it's a very bad idea. Um, and there are a number of reasons for, for saying it. Number one, uh, I, I know for a fact that there was virtually no consultation with the councils. This was just sprung on everyone as a, um, you know, as a fait accompli. They said they've taken, they'd made extensive, uh, consultations. Well, I don't believe that. I actually don't believe that because if they well, did, this I wouldn't have happened. The question is who they consulted. Yeah. I mean, you can extensively consult people when you get to get what you want to hear. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, if, if I want if I want to um, if I want to push the work of a particular author who most people think is pretty bad, but I consult literary uh, literary clubs devoted to him on every continent, I could probably get some extensive consultation that he was a great writer. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is. This was presented as a way to attract youth to the color guard. Well, I've got to say it's kind of on a par with saying we need guitar masses because it'll attract the youth. Yeah. When When you hear this kind of thing, inevitably it's people thinking back to their own youth and what they would have liked. And surely that'll attract today's youth. No. I mean... And the worst of it is, it would be one thing if the uniform was better than the old uniform. 
but uh, the whole beret and suit look, it looks like the Royal Canadian Legion. Yeah. And me... don't get me wrong. I like the Royal Canadian Legion. Okay? Yeah. I do. They're great. But the Knights of Columbus should not be easily confused with them, especially in the United States. Yeah, I mean, to me, the uh, the new uniform is so lackluster. It's just a suit with a beret. Um, you know, yeah. what what I what, the thing I always say um, is that the young people, more even more so than old people, young people have a great appreciation of epic things oh. that are epic, things that feel epic, which is is why um, you know we like more you know we like the latin mass because we like the incense we like the smells and the bells we like the feeling of epic um and the beret or the the new outfit is just a beret in a suit so uh, you know it, it seems like like they're embarrassed or like someone said now i have heard some criticisms from young people of the old one i heard uh one young gentleman said it's the captain crunch hat you know, from the, the cereal, the, you've got no. you've got the hat, Captain. Cr- I thought that was kind of funny. Um, so I guess there's some. I, it feels like to me like Supreme is embarrassed because it's it's old fashioned and perhaps it feels antiquated. Well, but again, Supreme, and I and I, I can't say this for sure. I don't know, but I can't imagine that the average age of Supreme would be younger than me, and if they're older than me. Or my age, then they're prime boomers. And again, we come to the same problem that boomers have in every other aspect of life. I would say also another another problem with the uh, with the uniform change is that there are a lot of knights out there who are fearful of the current regime. And I'm, by the way, I am not saying that this is true. I have no reason to believe this myself. And I... I have absolutely no reason to, to to say that it's a it's a fear that's justified. Yeah. But there's a widespread fear that the current administration of the Knights basically want to go the route of the foresters and jettison all the fraternalism and be just a big insurance company. Uh because of course insurance is the big mainstay of the Knights of Columbus. And a lot of other Catholic fraternal orders have gone that route. A non-Catholic, the foresters and so forth. Uh, and I'm sure that's great in terms of maintaining a profit as a business. But in terms of being what our beloved founder, Father McGivney, wanted us to be, that's a whole other issue. Uh, I, you know, what is it supposed to criticize the, the leadership? But... Uh, I personally think the real reason why there are problems in terms of recruiting for the Knights of Columbus, so this is just me, I could easily be wrong, and I'm certainly open to correction, is not that the uniforms are outdated, quote-unquote. It's not even that uh, councils tend to be on the old side, because every organization these days uh, tend to be heavy on old people, and if they know what they're doing on very young people, but somehow my generation and the ones immediately after us are missing. I don't know where we go, but we're not there. Time and time again in all sorts of organizations, I go there and that's what I see. The old, the young, but, you know, people, you're, by young, I mean your age and younger. Right. Uh, but not, 
Not my kind of people. I don't know what we're doing, but we're not doing that. Um, I suspect that part of the problem is, and it's it's an understandable one, all right, so I'm not really begging on Supreme for not taking action in this area. I can understand why they might not. But right now we are living through a tremendous crisis in the faith of the Catholic Church in the United States, a tremendous crisis in the life of the Catholic Church in the United States. And that crisis, of course, has to do with the pedo scandals, with the developing credibility gap for the Holy See, for all these things. And America's Catholics are looking for decisive, real leadership. We're not getting it from Rome. For the most part, we're not getting it from our bishops. I say for the most part because there are some honorable exceptions. This would be a tremendous time for Supreme to step up. But it's not likely to. And the reason it's not likely to is that you can't really expect Supreme to take more of a stance than the generality of the bishops. It, it, the Knights of Columbus have always been very much tied, and for very good reason, have been very much tied to the clerical leadership of the church. And certainly when we were founded, and for many decades thereafter, that made perfect sense, and it was a tremendous, of tremendous benefit to the order, to the hierarchy, and to the Catholic people at large. Whether it's still a benefit is something that probably uh, we need to uh, reconsider. But at any rate, if Supreme are really, really keen on overcoming our membership problems, then I suspect that providing a clear voice in these troubled times would be a great thing to do. The problem is, of course, that a clear voice could very well bring us into uh, into uh a collision course in some of the hierarchy. And that is not something the Knights ever want to do. Uh, it may be something that we end up forced into. You know, if we had an, an episcopate like Germany's, I, 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 uh, well, see that again. I mean, Cardinal Tobin has attacked the Catholic catechism, catechism of the Catholic Church. And I don't think, I don't think we're going to be hearing too much squawking from our side. Yeah, approval, it's quite a dilemma. Approval for um, from the hierarchy, I think, is a little important. I know, um, see, our, our, or my council, uh, is, uh, we serve uh, three or four parishes. And yeah. I, I know one parish, um, apparently, um, we're not allowed in one parish because we're too Catholic. And they're like, no, um, we're not going to let you in. Uh, and, yeah, that parish has a certain reputation uh, liberal reputation. Um, so, but couldn't the bishop also do that and say, "Knights, you aren't allowed," you know, in these parishes? Yeah. yeah see, so that that's a problem. That would be a problem. You sure could. I mean, the the knights of the knights of Columbus are. I mean, that's our Achilles' heel in a sense, I, and it's not an Achilles' heel that could be fixed because it's the very nature of our calling to work in concert with hierarchy. Um. Could the Pope could the Pope do like an equivalent of like what Benedict with the Latin Mass could could, could a Pope say uh, you don't the knights do not need permission uh, in order to uh, you know work in tandem with a parish? Sure, could I mean the Pope could do whatever he liked. 
Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, as far as this pontificate goes, I wouldn't hold my breath. Yeah, but he could. I mean, look. You know, the funny thing is too that the Knights of Columbus are one of a whole number of similar fraternal orders around the world, based upon the Knights of Columbus, which was the oldest and most successful. Yeah. I'm also a member, as you know, of the Knights of Peter Claver, which is uh, basically the Black Knights of Columbus. Uh, founded because in the good old days, quote-unquote-unquote-unquote, um, it was very difficult, not impossible, for black Catholics to join the order in the South. And so, just as uh, St. Mary's New Haven is the cradle church of the Knights of Columbus, uh, Mary Immaculate in, the, uh, in uh, Mobile, Alabama, is the cradle church of the Knights of Peter Claver. Mm. But in Ireland, you have the Knights of St. Uh, Columba. In England, you have the Knights of St. Columbanos. In Australia, you've got the Knights of the Southern Cross. And in South Africa, you have the Knights of Dagama. Uh, there are a few others scattered around, the Knights of Marshall in Ghana and so on. Basically, it's, it's mostly not entirely uh, because the Knights of Columbus, oddly enough, were found in the United States, Canada, Mexico, Poland, the Dominican Republic, the Bahamas. Um, and what, one, of my, one of my curiosities, and it's not one that I'm going to get fulfilled likely anytime soon, is what fourth-degree rituals are like in foreign countries because it's patriotism is the, the degree. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's very much centered on that. And I'm, I'm, I'm just curious as to how the other the other national branches of the order deal with that. But at any rate, uh, no, I mean, listen, I love the Knights of Columbus. I love what the order has always stood for. Its defects are defects that are not, shall we say, confined to it. They're the defects of the time in which the church is going through. Um, and each council is its own thing, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's it's not this big, giant, homogenous body. It's very much, uh, you know, again, yeah, each council is its own thing. I, you hear very different stories from very different councils. Right. Very, councils can be quite different. And, of course, uh, the, every state council is different. California, Nevada. We got one two. Of the things... Don't we have two? Is no, just the one. Oh, okay. I thought we split in half. No. Oh, okay. No, but we do have... Um, we do have, for areas like ours that have a lot of councils, you have uh, chapters and things like that. Oh, okay. Which you don't have when there are fewer. Uh, and then the fourth degree has its own uh, uh, organization alongside. The, um, the one thing we didn't talk about with the uniforms that I thought was sad is that, you know, the because um, I was reading in comments on, on this item that, you know, you have a lot of oldsters who forked out the 500 bucks for the old uniform. And now, you know, the new uniform costs 500 bucks and they very much love the Knights and they don't have another 500 bucks to spare to do yeah. the, you know, to even do it. And they like the old uniform and they can't do, you know, the call outs anymore, you know, uh, to show off the regalia at, uh, at functions. And uh, it, I think that's a very sad thing. Well, again, it points to the fact that this was not well thought out. Yeah. And I know a lot of councils are simply refusing to take the new uniform. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. 
So I don't think it's a done deal by any means. Um, what if I were bound and determined to do something like this, and I wouldn't presume to advise Supreme, of course. I never, I never presume to advise my betters. Right. But uh, if I had been they, and I were really keen on doing something like this, I would have had a few councils try it out as a trial balloon to see if it made a difference. In other words, selected a few that were willing to go along with it in major metropolitan areas and see if, in fact, it did attract new fourth-degree people. Because then you'd be, you'd be in a position uh, to say, well, look, it works. But no, I mean, that, that would have made sense. Rather than committing the whole organization to this and arousing all the bitterness and nonsense that it's aroused, uh, it, would make, it would have made much more sense just to have made uh, an experiment of that sort. And then they could say, look, look what it's done, unless it failed. In which case, if it failed, then, okay, we should come up with something else. Yeah. But uh, this way, at a time when the last thing the knights need to be worrying about is costuming, why do this? Right now, the church in America is imploding over these bloody scandals, over the the revelation uh, with Uncle Ted and all the rest of it, of the extent to which our hierarchy has been rotted. And we're on top of all that, we've got clothing issues. Yeah. I, I can only I can only say that uh, I don't think Supreme was very well advised by whoever advises them. Um this this is a time when as many councils are doing incidentally on their own this is a time when we should be addressing issues of manhood what it is to be a catholic man a catholic gentleman um i know members of one council in uh san gabriel valley are uh, using as a sort of study guide uh uh bishop olmstead phoenix's uh, path on masculinity, which the uh, which the knights have endorsed as a whole. Uh, I mean, that's a very good thing to do. And fathers are bringing their sons to those sessions. That's exactly the kind of thing we should be doing as a whole, exercising leadership of that kind, instead of fighting over costume. But what do I know? Well. All we can do is hope and pray. Yep, I leave these decisions to my betters. All my life, they've only done. So, they've always done so well. <laughs> don't say that. That's what? Oh, you don't want me to lie and say they've screwed everything up, do you? My betters in church and state, my entire life, have always been the very best imaginable. Uh, someone's trying to get ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Is my nose changing color? Oh, stop. That's a... You know, there was a, an old civil rights song my parents used to sing that had the um, had the refrain, What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? And the one verse that I remember, I remember so, but this is the one that's germane. 
I learned our government must be strong. It's always right and never wrong. Our leaders are the finest of men, and we elect them again and again. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. <laughs> nice. It's good to know that from that day to this, in church and state and every other element of society, it's a strict meritocracy, and only the best are in charge. That's how Tumblr House modeled uh, our yeah. great, yes. wondrous corporation after. Tumblr, Tumblr House models itself well on this very thing. Yes. The, the best rise to the top, like yeah, the, soup. No, like... <laughs> <laughs> That's not how it goes, Charles. <laughs> Just waiting for a label to come along. <laughs> what else we got? Okay. Enough of this folder all. What do we got? All right. Questions from the people. Ah, oh, the people. Yeah, we're all about the people. Yes. Your adoring fans. The people, yes. Um, all right. First question is from Michael Bates. Hello, Michael Bates. Hello, Mr. Coulomb. Could you please yes. talk? Could you please talk about Augusto Pinochet, the late Chilean dictator? I'm a fan of Francisco Franco and would like to know your opinion on Pinochet's regime in Chile. Well, first things first. As we know, he came to power through overthrowing his predecessor, who was a man whose name was. I can't believe it. It's got right out of my head. I don't remember his... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry about this. I do it like the back of my head. I remember watching the television while it was going out in 1973. But his predecessor, whose name I can't remember, was a communist. Now, his election was not what led the army to overthrow him. What led the army to overthrow him? was his beginning to create Allende, Salvador Allende. Allende that was yeah. it. There we go. He uh, was beginning to recruit a people's militia that would have replaced the army and have ensured that the Communist Party, which in those days, remember, ladies and gentlemen, this was before the fall of the Soviet Union. People forget, and they're certainly not going to be reminded in school the way they are of the Nazis, People forget what the communists would actually do to countries they got their hands on. The countries didn't do very well. Now, living where I am right now in Austria, tomorrow I'm going to go to Budapest for the weekend, I get my snout filled a lot with what communism was really like. I think one of the reasons why the Western Europeans and the Americans consider the Central Europeans so retrograde is because the Central Europeans had their faces smacked into reality real hard in a way that Western Europeans haven't had since World War II and Americans haven't had probably since the Civil War, maybe the Depression. That was the last time we really, uh, we really came face-to-face -face with reality. But anyway, Allende was not happy with the notion that Chile would go the way of Poland, Czechoslovakia, etc. And the Soviets, who already had their foothold in Cuba, and we're just looking forward to uh, Chile as an added uh, added uh, feast. So what did Pinochet do? To prevent uh, Chile from going that way, he overthrew the government. 
and he put himself in charge. Now, it's an interesting thing about that. What does Catholic uh, teaching on revolution teach us? When is the revolt justified? Well, several times, several things have to be required. Firstly, there has to be a clear danger to the Catholic faith. What are you citing from? A specific document I can't pull out of my head, but this is... A papal document. Yeah, but it's consensus. Okay. I'll, uh, in our next episode... I, 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 just wanted to make, I was just curious whether it's papal or whether it was Aquinas. Um. A mixture of the two, probably. Okay. But I'm so used to repeating this that I couldn't give you, a, uh, I couldn't give you a, uh, an exact background. Okay. It's certainly repeated often enough. Uh, the first is that the Catholic faith be actually threatened. In a communist takeover, yes, there's always an explicit threat to the Catholic faith. Always. Communism is atheism. There's no question about that. So, the second, would doing nothing result in something worse than revolting would? This is a very good question. Because, as you know, revolutions are generally accompanied by all sorts of upset. I mean, national life gets paralyzed to a greater or lesser degree. Certainly blood is shed. So you mustn't revolt unless you're pretty sure that the alternative would be worse than what you're going to go through as a result of the revolt. Thirdly, you've got to have a pretty good chance of winning. If you, if you don't think you've got a good shot at it, don't do it. In other words... Lives should not be lost in a dramatic gesture. So, how does this apply to what faced Pinochet? Was the faith directly threatened? Oh, yeah. Would doing nothing end with worse results than taking action? Oh, yeah. Did they have a good chance of winning? Yes, but not if they waited until the popular militia was formed and armed. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. So. Good idea. Yeah, time to move on this one. <laughs> so they did. And uh, were, were they very nice to their opponents? No. Would their opponents have been nice to them had they succeeded in communizing Chile? No. Civil wars are always the worst kind of war. If you don't believe me, look at ours. And so... Which one? uh, Well, actually, either one. Either the first civil war or the second. Okay. Either the war with the crown or the war between the states. Um, But, fortunately... Because Allende moved, not Allende, uh, because Pinochet moved when he did. He moved quickly. He was able to minimize the amount of uh, upset that occurred to the body politic. Uh, Did everything he do, was everything he did nice? No. Uh, It never is, and that's sort of a setup. Um, But, He saved Chile from becoming a communist country. His economic policies did the country a lot of good. Um, 
And as far as his dealing with the opposition and uh, ending democracy during his period, I think that has to be seen in the greater in the greater context. I mean, was Franco's Spain worse than modern Spain? Well, if we're talking about body count, uh, no. Since far more infants uh, are killed every year in Spain than were than uh, political opponents were killed by Franco. That's if body count means anything. And the same was true under uh, under Allende. There was no abortion in Chile. There is now. So you have to measure all these things into it. See, we have very tender, tender um, sensibilities about life. We get very upset, for instance, when puppies drown. It's even worse if a person drowns them. But we don't mind infants being slaughtered. Now, I kind of think that if you apply that to our entire point of view, we're a little twisted. Now, that doesn't mean our opinions aren't strong. They are. They're very strong. Our points of view are very, very powerful to us. Very, As my brother would say, they're very real to us. But being real to us doesn't mean they're objectively true. It just means they're very real to us. Obviously, the further removed from objective reality they may be, well, anyway, that's a whole other issue. The point I'm making is that in terms of what he had to deal with and where it was and so on and so forth, I think Pinochet was justified. I think that the, uh, I think that Chile owes him a lot, just as Spain owes Franco a lot. And I think that the punishment that was meted out to Pinochet as an old man was completely unjust, even as I think the attempts to drag out Franco's body now are unspeakable. I think the Prime Minister of Spain is unspeakable. And, um, you know, I hope he, uh, may he receive what he wants to give. Hmm. Okay, so Francisco Franco was a fascist, right? Was what? Fascist. I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry, you were saying? (laughs) I know you heard me. I know you heard me. What did you say? uh, The Austro-fascist sympathies are coming out, guns blazing over here. I heard (laughs) Austro-sympathies. See, I've decided to excise from my mind a meaningless word. It's, I'm not using it anymore. <laughs> it's, you know what that's reminiscent of? That's reminiscent of the young pope where he, he banished, what is the word, tolerance? Yeah. Or, I forgot. I, I, think, I think so. Yeah. You, you deleted it. Yep. It's deleted. Fascism is no longer welcome here. <laughs> Been there, done that. Uh, wow. It's, if you want to examine a regime... Then you have to look at it. You can't. You don't get to. You don't get to knock it off with the with the F word. Ooh. You have to examine it. You can say what you like about it. What you don't like about it. What you don't get to do is dismiss it with the F word. That sounds good. I like that. 
There's only one exception I make for that, and that's for go- for governments to call themselves fascist. Oh, yeah, Biden to call Italy fascist. Yeah. But see, then the same thing happens. What do you like or dislike about Italian fascism? Um, that's, you know. Okay. Right, very good. Next question is from a gentleman named Quuck. Uh, what does Mr. Coulomb think people should wear to Mass on Sundays? Satin and burlap. Yeah, no. Practice what you preach, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I think they should wear to Mass whatever they would wear for a job interview or meeting their congressman. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it would be that high for me and your congressman. I mean, would it? Yeah, I think God is a little bigger than a congressman. I mean, how, the how, how about the president? How about the president? Yeah, the president. We, 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 let's do that. The president, or for that matter, if you're a Canadian or Australian or British or something, the governor general of the queen. There you go. Why, you ask? Well, because he's like God and stuff. Now, does that mean that if you can't afford to dress well, you shouldn't go? Not at all. Not at all. You should just wear the best of whatever it is you've got. If the best of what you've got, you know, is your set, is your, your of your two gunny sacks, uh, you know, the, the better of the two gunny sacks, well, then wear that. But wear what you would wear if you were going someplace you really thought was important. To see someone you thought was worth seeing. Uh, I mean, that just seems commonsensical to me. If I really believe that's God on the altar, then I naturally want to appear the best I can, not for the other people in the congregation, not for the guy in the funny collar and the dress, no. For the man, the being, the God-man, that sits on the altar throne. Him. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you say it's just common sense, but common sense is a pretty rare commodity nowadays. I mean, have you seen common sense prices? They've been skyrocketing. Um, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> just, Not at the 99 cents uh, store. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I do my shopping. Uh, and I know that's where the commissary does its shopping, so... <laughs> buying in bulk well, I'm... no but I mean honestly um, if I were um, if I were a priest um, and I wanted to address this issue that's how I would do it okay All right next question is from superfan Jay Voiles hello superfan alright he asks what are the things that Catholics and Protestants agree about and are there any positive things that happened because of the Protestant Reformation? Well, let's uh, do the first one, the last one first. Okay. No. Now, let's move on to the second. <laughs> oh, well, uh, wait, no, let's stop there. Let's stop there. Are there any positive things that happened because of the Protestant Reformation? Because uh, um, the, the only thing you could say that were positive was the Counter-Reformation. 
Yeah, see, the, uh, the, I didn't want to say there was something directly positive from the counter, from, the, excuse me, the, the reform, the, well, the Protestant revolt. Um, yeah. But that, this question made me think of the theme that you're big on, which is God writes straight through crooked lines. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, w- w- for example, with uh, the Pope Francis situation, you th- you have stated that you believe that will lead to a clarification on papal infallibility. Yeah, you know, it's, so it's sort of like a stress test. Like, okay, here are the holes in the ship, and we need to sort of fix these things. And so, yeah, I, and so, to, yeah. So, did, did the Protestant Reformation lead to good actual reform? Uh, excuse me, I, I keep saying Protestant Reformation, Protestant Revolt lead to actual reforms in the church? Did we shore anything up? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, oh, happy fault in this particular case, as did the French Revolution. Hmm. Uh, But, you know, just like the fall of man, they said, oh, happy fault, because it led to the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection. But it doesn't make it any less a fault. I still wish Adam and Eve had left the tree alone. Right, right, yeah. So similarly, it's certainly true that God brings good out of evil, but it's even better if the evil doesn't happen. Right. Uh, so, yeah, we got the Counter-Reformation, which brought forth a lot of good things. And being here in Central Europe, just chock-a-block with Baroque, every, seemingly every other church I go into, I, my breath is taken away. Mm. I mean, I'm talking about little parish churches in the middle of nowhere you go in, it's like, heavens. If it were in the States, you'd have people lined up to see them. Yeah. But um, nevertheless, that doesn't change the fact that the original thing was not good. Right. So uh, as to what we agree with on the Protestants, it all depends on what kind of Protestant you're talking about. So if, for instance, we're talking about uh, high church Anglicans or Anglo-Catholics, and certain high church Lutherans, then we agree with them on virtually everything except the supremacy of the Pope and infallibility. I mean, I have met people in both camps who accept the assumption of the Virgin Mary or Immaculate Conception, um, not papal infallibility, of course, but the apostolic succession, the real presence, the seven sacraments, prayers for the dead, all that stuff. Uh other Protestants, of course, reject the whole apostolic succession and sacramental thing, reject veneration of the Virgin Mary and the saints, but they hold on to the Trinity, the virgin birth, the resurrection of our Lord, um, all that kind of thing. Well, let's, uh, well, let's talk about, um, okay, what was but, oh, okay, sorry, excuse me. But... Some of them reject all of that. Uh, The virgin birth, the resurrection, the miracles of Christ, the divine inspiration of the Bible. uh, All that goes out the window. The Trinity, for some, goes out the window. So basically, the, the problem you have with Protestantism is that it can range all the way from Anglo Catholicism to Unitarianism. And anything in between. Okay. 
let's take a specific let's take a specific person just out of my personal curiosity um, because sure. one very very prominent uh, Catholic media figure called Billy Graham a quote evangelist and so I where where, where does where is Billy Graham on this spectrum? Well. Uh, given that he never converted to Catholicism and that he continued to receive the ordinances in his own church, I don't recall if he was, I think he was a Baptist. Yes, he was a Baptist. So he rejected infant baptism. He rejected the sacraments as we know them, the apostolic succession. Um, he rejected the Pope, of course, all those things. Uh, or I should say he rejected the papacy because I know that he spoke very highly of several popes as individuals, but not as mm. hierarchs. Um, he certainly believed in the Trinity. He believed in the divinity of Christ, the inerrancy of the scriptures. Um, he believed in angels. He believed in the resurrection. Um, so yeah. he believed in the basic Christological doctrines while rejecting all the doctrines about the church. Yeah, my brother was so triggered by that tweet. He, he he had to respond and say, "I didn't know Billy Graham was Catholic." Uh, <laughs> well, <that> a good... <laughs> well, strictly speaking, uh, we should only call someone an evangelist if he preaches the entirety of the truth. I, I agree, hundred percent. I mean, and don't get me wrong. Uh, in humanly speaking, in a lot of ways, Billy Graham had a lot of admirable traits, and at different times, he was. Uh, very friendly to Catholics and sometimes to Catholicism per se. I mean, I know he, for instance, he liked John Paul II very much as a man. Uh, and I'll say that as a man, he had a lot of admirable traits. You know, I, uh, I hope somehow he became a Catholic before he popped it, but who knows? Yeah. Right. Next question is from Jack. Actually, the next two questions are from Jack, on, uh, and both relate to voluntarism. Uh, his first question. Charles, in my seminary studies, we've been taught that voluntarism is the ultimate philosophical villain. In my own research, I have been drawn to blessed Dun Scotus, who today is often painted as a voluntarist. Is voluntarism as bad as my professors make it out to be? Is a person automatically a voluntarist if he believes in the primacy of the will? And also for 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 everyone like uh, who doesn't know what voluntarism, what what is voluntarism exactly? Well, basically, uh, there are two in the Middle Ages, and we're talking, mind you, the word, the, a lot of words like idealism and so forth, um, have different meanings today than they did in the Middle Ages. Or they've been used several times by different people to mean different things. Okay. The voluntarism of the Middle Ages was indeed the idea, as with Plato, that the will precedes the intellect. Uh, the champions of this idea were people like Duns Scotus and St. Bonaventure. Their opponent was the Aristotelians, who believed that the intellect precedes the will. This is called intellectualism. And St. Thomas Aquinas was its major Catholic champion. I thought it's a little bit more complicated than that because I was asking my brother, because I'm not a philosophical person, and I was trying to ask him the difference. And wasn't it, there was something, 
more specific. It wasn't the intellect precedes the will. I thought it was um, something like an unhindered intellect or something like that or an un... I forgot. Then you get then you get into, shall we say, subgroupings. I'm giving you the broadest possible oh, basis. Okay. Because voluntarists, you're right, in that, in that it's more complex than simply voluntarist versus intellectualist. It's a lot more complex. Um, that's why Duns Scotus uh, was very Catholic and why William of Ockham, who also believed that the will precedes the intellect, went off the, went off the, uh, the rails. Uh, part of the problem, I think, and you'll, and you'll find the, the same too on the intellectualist side, I think part of the problem is when a philosopher pursues his philosophy to its own logical conclusion without any reference to the church, to the body of Catholic of church dogma. Uh, in other words, when he puts philosophy ahead of theology, if you don't start out with certain things like the Catholic faith is literally true and that anything that seems to, diff- to collide with that is simply wrong, well, then you're going to get messed up. Uh, Certainly, without Duns Scotus, we wouldn't have had the definition of the Immaculate Conception. And it was the the prestige of St. Thomas Aquinas that prevented the Immaculate Conception from being defined for so many centuries. Now, uh, Thomism being the only major school of Catholic philosophy after the... 17, 1800s, 1600s, hmm. uh, brought the church several problems. I'm sure that had Scotism or Augustinianism been the only school of philosophy, there would have been problems, different kind. The older I get, the more I study these things, the more I begin to think I see that the different medieval schools of philosophy, so long as they stayed in fidelity to the magisterium, acted as correctives on each other's excesses. Um, Personally, I mean, I believe the will precedes the intellect. And certainly the older I get and the more how I see people will do what they want to do, regardless of how they've been trained or raised, the the more confirmed I am. Although any good philosopher would tell you that confirming your philosophical views based merely upon external reality is a terrible thing to do. Uh, but I'm afraid I'm too much an historian and too tied to objective uh, empirical evidence that uh, I really can't go that route. All I know is that, so far as I can tell, if the intellect preceded the will, then you would never have converts and you would never have... Uh... Aquinas doesn't say that, actually, does he? No, he doesn't. He says, I'm reading here, it says the intellect and the will are engaged in a dynamic, complex interaction. Absolutely uh, with, with multiple stages between an initial initial perception and cognition by the intellect of the final action of the will with occasional interruptions or overrides by the passions. Absolutely true, but that is not what Thomas will tell you. A lot of Thomas, I should say. Well, I thought there are branches of Thomism. So is, exactly. Yeah. And if uh, if I had if I had sufficient money or were paid to do so, I would write a book called St. Thomas Against the Thomists, which would be fun. 
and it would annoy people, which I would also enjoy. I have to admit it. But uh, similarly, you'll find Dunscotus and his ilk to be much more complex than uh, our questioners, professors give them credit for. Uh, but I, I, I know for a fact that the uh, proponents of different schools of philosophy tend to be very, very passionate about their philosophy. Yeah, I think that's why most people don't like talking about philosophy because it's so complex and intricate and up in the clouds in, in addition to that, passionate. So Yeah, I mean, people get absolutely outraged. Yeah. And the last thing you ever want to deal with is a philosopher who feels his favorite uh, philosophical figure has been attacked. Yeah. They get all illogical. Okay. Uh, all right. So the next uh, kind of related question from Jack on volunteerism. Uh, he says, I've started to notice that the whole philosophy – oh, he says, Charles, I'm studying philosophy in a seminary. I've started to notice that the whole philosophy program here is built around a certain narrative – or perspective, which is that the rise of voluntarism in the Middle Ages all the way to today has led to our modern moral situation. The opposite approach, which we need to get back to this, is the teleology of Aquinas. Do you think this narrative uh, is correct and is the best way for us to understand the decline of ethics over the centuries? Well, it's certainly one way of doing so. And I won't say it's a way that's entirely wrong by any, any stretch. Uh, I think it's incomplete. How? Because the the uh, uh, other thing you've got to bear in mind is that at the same time, the, how do I put this? One effect that the growth of Thomistic philosophy had over society was the... Um, it contributed to the destruction of the medieval state. Now that sounds strange, but I have to go back to the argument over the reality of the Platonic forms. Uh, the medieval state, medieval society as a whole, is in a sense a mutually imagined concept by our standards. Uh, one of the most important concepts in law was the king's peace. But what was that? Well, if anybody was breaking the law, because the king had no central secret police or anything to deal with it, you and me and a bunch of the neighbors would get together, we'd smack around the desperados and restore the king's peace. That's a platonic idea. And it came to mean less and less as our understandings of the things became more and more Aristotelian. The social nature of sin as opposed to its merely its individual effect, became to be less came to be less and less understood. Uh, our whole idea of victimless sins only makes sense if we are completely unrelated atoms, which is a, a an exaggerated drawing out of the Aristotelian view of society. Um, and I'm not saying, by the way, that it's not distorted. It is. But the point is, that is another way of looking at the same phenomena. And it's no less true, no more untrue, than the one that uh, our friend is studying. Um, by itself, it would probably be incomplete as well. But that doesn't make it untrue. I, I mean, this is what I, what I mean. 
historical phenomena to try to get at the, the reality of them, you have to look at them from a whole lot of different points of view, specifically and especially philosophical points of view. Um, because no one of them by themselves will account for all the facts. And I think that the the uh, damage that the decline of the uh, neoplatonic political imagination did on the West has been insufficiently uh, insufficiently researched. Okay. I still, I, I still, the differences between um, what is it? Platonic and Aristotelian is still lost on me. How you arrive at the, uh, how you pick a side uh, at their initial decision whether there are forms on another plane or not. Like, I don't know how you arrive at one or the other. How do you arrive at whether there are forms on another plane or in, I guess, in God's mind? Whether he thinks well, of them as forms or atoms or smaller or more infinitely more complex. It seems like a, a simplification to the human level. Um, well, basically, the uh, the whole the origin of the whole idea is Plato's uh, famous parable of the cave. And the idea is that, for instance, this table that you're sitting on, at least as far as I'm looking at you right now, yeah, this table that uh, that you're on is a table. It's recognizable to me as a table because it's a reflection of the Platonic form, the table. Yeah. Uh, similarly, honor, love, those sorts of qualities are also platonic forms. And the, their, their concrete expressions are reflections of those forms, which the Christian Neoplatonists, like Augustine and the rest of them, put in the mind of God, as opposed to some realm. Now, Aristotle comes along, but he says, well, the forms are real, but they are made up of the subtotal of their concrete expressions. Or to put this another way, the form table exists because of tables. Yeah. Now, if you look at the, the effect that this would have politically, for instance, the state, the realm, the king's peace, was a self-existing form that we choose to participate in. It has an existence beyond us, and our obligation is to keep it up, keep it strong, keep it healthy. But you turn that around, you reverse it, you look at it through Aristotle's eyes. Then the state, the, the king's peace, becomes simply the uh, subtotal of the subjects. In which case, hmm. if you can't enforce the law, well, there is no law. Mind you, that's how it actually ended up working out concretely. I don't say it couldn't have been done differently theoretically, but in terms of how these things actually played out in the real world, uh, once the concept of the, the polity as a self-existing thing beyond us and beyond the, its individual total, its total of individuals, was lost, uh, then it became necessary for governments to have more power than they had before if they were to maintain themselves. And as a result, the subject himself became freer. I'm sorry, not uh, became less free. Because to simply ensure order, the reigning regime had to use more in the way of brute force. 
I see. And it's important to bear in mind, though, that these things changed gradually over a long time. It didn't happen all at once. Nobody turned a switch. And other things are going on at the same time. The adoption of a money economy, the growth of banking, and then eventually what became capitalism, all this sort of stuff. They were all slowly happening. They had effects on each other. But which was chicken and which was egg? That's, I mean, you could also say that this way of looking at things made it much more convenient for nascent capitalism, for money economy, for the birth of the modern state. So it, it mm. there's a lot of chicken and eggery in here. Oof. It's hard to grasp for me. Uh, <laughs> it's very difficult. But um, well, don't worry about it. You live in I, California. It, it it makes. I I think I'm closer to grasping it. It seemed like the initial choice between the two schools seemed more arbitrary for physical objects. But then when you talked about the king's piece, it seemed it's it, it seems to make more sense. Uh, the um, I guess. The holistic version of that, there's this idea of the king's peace somewhere. Well, I'll tell you, I look at it this way. Imagine you've got Plato and Aristotle as map makers. Now, Plato is kind of slipshod, not very exact. Um, maybe doesn't always have the best of memories, but he believes the world is round. Okay. Aristotle has an incredible gift for detail and a wonderful memory. But he thinks the world is flat. Now, okay. if you want a map of your immediate neighborhood, I'd go to Aristotle. If you want a world map or a globe or anything bigger than that, go to Plato. Okay, so you're talking about the okay. So in the micro, you're saying Aristotle. In the macro, you're saying Plato. Yeah, by and large. Okay, by and large. Okay. I mean, they're both with their utility. The other thing too, you got to bear in mind. And the older I get, the more I think this. To some degree, whether one is an Aristotelian or a Platonist has to do with temperament. Interesting. How is that? Well. I find that some people just naturally glom on to Plato and some people naturally glom on to Aristotle. And it tends to be connected somewhat to their personalities. Aristotle attracts the fine detail sort of people. Plato, like the big picture visionary kinds of folk. Hmm. Yeah, that's... Uh... That, that that makes me think of like the Myers-Briggs test where it's like that you try to figure out, it's like, okay, do you, are you big picture or are you detail oriented or? Uh, you know, if I knew how, I'll bet I could come up with a test. Are you, are you Aristotelian or Platonic? That would be brilliant. That would be brilliant, Charles. Well, it would, but you know, they would both hate me. <laughs> Why? Well, because both would say that they base their views entirely on objective truth, and it has nothing to do with their predispositions. Ah, uh, that's true. They'd be very upset with me by for implying that their pre-existing psychology had anything. Actually, the Platonists probably wouldn't be bothered by that because they think that anyway. But mm. the Aristotelians would not be pleased. <laughs> okay. 
See, for the, for the Platonists, one of the other differences is that they believe that in some sense we already know, know everything. This, when, you're, when, you're, when you come into existence at the moment of conception, you've already got a lot of knowledge sort of hidden in you. And that to a great degree, learning is recalling. For the Aristotelian, you're a tabula rasa. You have absolutely nothing on your on your mind when you when you're conceived, uh, and the rest of your life you basically are, are you're adding whatever. And this is why the intellect precedes the will. For the Platonist, the will precedes the intellect because you're already a functioning personality. You're attracted toward truth to the degree that you're good-willed. You're attracted toward uh, uh, evil or untruth to the degree that you're bad-willed. For the Aristotelian, it's purely a question of what you learn. Hmm. So if you're taught that something is good, it's good. If you're taught it's bad, it's bad. Now, my problem for the uh, with the Aristotelian view of it is simply that so often people who you would think, in terms of their training, etc., ought to go along a particular path. They often don't. As I say, if what they say is true, you would never be able to have converts and you would never be able to have apostates. Well, it's funny when you say that, that makes me think of your monarchy argument where monarchs are generally good because they're trained to be good. Uh, So that, that sounds Thomistic now. Well, it is to a degree, but it generally is the good is the good thing to remember, because it's not always true. Okay. They have free will. Okay. And there are there are bad monarchs. I mean, if the Aristotelians were correct, Henry VIII would have been the holiest monarch in history. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, his intellect was well enough trained that he was able to write in defense of the seven sacraments. It's true. I mean. There was no problem with Henry VIII's intellect. His will was bad. Okay. Okay. Next question is from... Oh, wait. Oh, okay. Next question is from Joshua. Hmm. Greetings. Before I ask the question, I want, to, I want it to be clear that I'm not advocating for Buddhism or the like. Okay. I'm sorry. Something in a meditation. Oh, Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I don't want to disturb. Yeah. Meditation garden for that meditation, Joe. No. Uh, we, medication, we, we, don't, we don't condone that. We don't condone that. We don't condone that. No. Transcendental medication? <laughs> um, all right. Uh, many Eastern religions believe in chi, and Buddhists claim that chi gives them special abilities. I remember seeing on a TV show this monk that was shoving an electric drill into his head, applying force, and not injuring himself. Is it really fair to say that all of this is demonic? False religions, unless I'm wrong, usually contain some truth, but distorted. With nearly a whole continent believing in chi, is it possible that perhaps it is some kind of natural energy, or that perhaps some of these people have stumbled upon a way to rein? reawaken traits of Eden. Perhaps it sounds ridiculous, but it's a serious question. Hmm. Um, It doesn't sound ridiculous in the slightest. Um, And my, I, the only answer I could really give him is a big maybe. Uh, Really? Well, these are all plausible speculations. 
um, the question of Edenic qualities being reawakened and so forth, or 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 being more present in some people than others, uh, is something that Eloise Wiesinger goes into some detail about in his great book on this very topic, which I recommend highly, Occult Phenomena, uh, available you're, online. You're not an occultist, right? You're not, you're not trying no. to pitch some occult stuff to me, are you? No, Abbot Wiesinger was an extremely famous and well-renowned Cistercian abbot. Very famous here in Austria, because it was like Austrian and stuff. Okay. But uh, he, he looked into it from a Catholic perspective, and he deals with all of these possibilities. The thing to remember is that they're all possibilities. I mean, whether or not a given phenomenon is adenomic, uh, demonic, B, some natural thing of which we're not aware, C, some strange power from Eden left over in the wreck of our human uh, personality since Eden. So I, I don't know. This is too strange for me, Charles. So, I mean, St. Ignatius of Antioch said that the Catholic faith has the full charisma of truth. It so, does. So, but, but, it sounds like, trait, but it sounds like there's something that we don't have that's over here. This reawakening of a trait of Eden happens to be this false religion's thing. I, I don't understand that. Well, let's put this another way. It's a bit like precognitive dreams. But that's, now, an, indiv that's an individual, I mean, gift, isn't that? Compared to yeah, perhaps like a, a, a religion? Well, see, here's the thing. A lot of a lot of religions have been shaped around precognitive dreams and foretelling the future. A lot. I mean, if, for instance, a person was much better at precognitive dreams than I am, uh, you could well imagine how they'd be seen as an oracle, as they tell things to come true. Now, that doesn't mean that the false doctrines that they base their prestige upon are true. It just means that they get flashes of insight into the future. They may say, well, I get this from Apollo. Yeah, well, maybe. Okay. Maybe so not. I, I see. So you're saying it's like an it perhaps is an individual gift that gets woven into the tapestry of this false religion. Precisely. Oh, okay. But I don't, then, I but don't then that would only be one person. I mean, how could there be a school? Not necessarily, not necessarily, because we don't really know what we're capable of. And you have, uh, I mean, I've known a few people, for instance, and I'm, I'm using a fairly grotesque example here. Okay. I know a few people who could play the piano by ear. They couldn't read music, but they could play the piano by ear. That is a gift some people have. Okay. Now, if you had a sufficiently large population base and you got a whole bunch of these people together, you could claim that they were a college of musicians directly inspired by the gods. It's interesting. Now, is it true? Well, yes and no. It's certainly true that they could play the piano by ear. Are they getting this from the gods? Uh, no. But every member, I have every member of this College of the Gods, or College of uh, uh, Musicians of the Gods, every one of them have to say every night the special prayer to the God of Music. 
and everyone who comes to see to hear their concerts have to pay my temple. Okay, but okay, well, okay. Well, let let's incorporate your your parallel here with this question, which is: Have these people stumbled uh, upon a way to reawaken tra- uh, reawaken traits of Eden? And answers wouldn't, wouldn't that be no? Um. I mean, are are, are we redefining have, natural like natural gifts as traits of Eden now? Well, I turn around. Any such gifts of Eden would be natural gifts, which for some reason in this individual or that are still present. Again, I, I refer you to uh, Abbot Wiesinger. He goes into this stuff in a lot more detail. But suffice to say that uh, none of this really bears on one's salvation. Right. Why? Because possession of such gifts, if they exist, is no indicator of whether the person is good or bad. Just like with this finger, I can do this. I can't do it with this finger, or this hand, rather. Can't do it. Unless I, you know, do that. Because, isn't, that the, isn't that the uh, Vulcan sign? That's the Vulcan. That's the Vulcan. Never, yeah. I can do it with this one. Live long and there prosper. <laughs> there can't it do is. It yes. With okay. this one. Okay. I just sort of spaz out a little bit. Yeah. Now, that doesn't make me good or bad. It just means that I can do it with one hand, not with the other. Can you uh, roll your tongue? You, you know, make a... Uh, no. Neither can I. A lot of people can. Huh. Move your ears back. Okay. So, these things are, in essence... No different from that kind of skill. Okay. Now that... An electric drill into someone's head, applying force and not injuring himself. That's pretty whacked. <sighs> and there's also the fourth possibility, beyond demonic, natural, and edenic. You know what that is? What? Illusion. Interesting. That's a possibility. Yep. I mean, you'd be amazed what magicians can do. One reason why magicians, uh, stage magicians, tend to be unbelievers, not always, but a lot of them are, is simply because when it comes to the miraculous, they know how you can do all kinds of extraordinary things. And they presume that anyone, any religious prophet at all who's ever had any miracles must have been one of their craft. Yeah, Ben Franklin was one of those guys. Star Spangled yep. Crown talks about the occult Franklin. That's a that's an eye opening chapter right there. He so wasn't should, a nice person, really. No, I didn't get that impression. I prefer the Ben Franklin I wrote about in Ben and Me, <laughs> which was supposed to Ben and Me. It was a, a novel written by Richard Lawson, uh, supposedly written by Benjamin Franklin's pet mouse. Cute. Okay. It was a children's book. Yeah, I'm sure it's bestseller. It was, but I like Ben Franklin and Ben and Me yeah. better than I like the real one. Yeah. Okay, next question is from Kale. Okay. Given that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a real historical person, why does Mary often shapeshift and appear as different races in Marian apparitions? She appears as Hispanic, Japanese, European, etc., but has she had 
uh, but she has never appeared as herself. Out of all the visions of Jesus, he doesn't seem to shapeshift, and yet Mary does. What's going on here? So is, it, is this really true, firstly? So uh, uh, Mary, there's a Marian apparition where she appears Japanese? Yeah. Which one is that? Akita, I think. Akita, okay, I didn't know that. Um, and how, how do we know that she's never appeared as herself? I don't know how he says that, because uh, given that she does look rather different from time to time, who's to say what she looks like? Exactly, yeah. But um, what I would say is that that is the maternal instinct at work. A mother always wants to appear in whatever form her children will love the most. And it's important to bear in mind that Every Catholic people, and some non-Catholic peoples, like the Chinese and Vietnamese, um, have a very specific relationship with the Virgin Mary. It's unlike that with anyone else. Uh, for instance, in, uh, in Austria, here, she's called Magna Mater Austriae, the Great Mother of Austria. But over the border in Bavaria... She's the uh, Patrona Bavaria, the patroness of Bavaria. But if you cross into Hungary, she is the perpetual queen of Hungary. Hmm. But if you go to France, she's the queen of France. But if you go to Mexico, she's the queen of Mexico and she's empress of the Americas. But if you go to the United States, she is Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception, patroness of these United States. Now, does that mean all these various guises are at war with each other? No. But I guarantee you that just as you and your uh, two brothers and your sister have somewhat different views of your mother, so too with us. Did she really appear? I mean, where is this Hispanic version? That's not Guadalupe. I think he's referring to Our Lady of Guadalupe. How do we know Our Lady of Guadalupe didn't look like uh, Our Lady of Lourdes? Oh, she's paler at Lourdes. Is she? Yeah. Is is that really the difference? Is that's so? That's the difference between European and, and Hispanic. Is is just the the you know the shade, the hue of? Well, that's what our questioner must think. To me, okay. I don't know. I. Anyway, we know the real, the only real uh, devotion to Our Lady is Notre Dame du Cap in Quebec. The only real devotion? Wait, what? Wait a minute. Are you trying to slip in some French-Canadian propaganda here? Oh, I'm sorry. Did that slip out? Wait a minute. Wait. What are you trying to do here? Tease? What do I ever try to do? <sighs> Sad. Anyway. Yeah. It's an expression of her maternal love for all of her various peoples. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, last question today is from Bob. Okay, Bob. Why does the Bible seemingly support slavery? Should Catholics be pro-slavery? If not, uh, what are actual historical and theological reasons not to? Has the church always been morally against slavery? Okay. Well... Firstly, uh, you've got to bear in mind that slavery 
was part of the world in which the church came to exist, as is reflected in the Bible. Uh, our Lord certainly did not abolish slavery. St. Paul uh, declared that uh, slaves should obey their masters and masters should be kind to their slaves. Interestingly enough, the two classes of people amongst whom Catholicism first became popular in Rome were the diametric opposites. The old pre-imperial nobility and the slaves. Mm. The old nobility because the faith gave a supernatural justification for their centuries-long attempt to hold on to traditional Roman virtues. And the slaves because it gave meaning and value to their lives. And because of that, up to and including the 19th century, uh, the church inevitably worked hard at ameliorating the worst elements of slavery. It encouraged uh, slave owners to free their slaves, but it never directly condemned the institution. It condemned a lot of abuses that came out of it. It laid down regulations uh, forbidding various things uh, that made it harder and harder, shall we say, for a slave owner to do whatever he wanted with his property. And eventually, as time went on, slavery died out in Western Europe. It would not be revived again until the 1400s, when a very funny, strange, peculiar thing happened. Uh, the West Coast of Africa had been a great market for slaves. The little kingdoms there in West Africa in those days were divided up into a lot of little tiny kings or kingdoms whose rulers would fight one another for the specific purpose of taking prisoners. And those prisoners would be sold as slaves. Uh, to whom, you ask? Well, they would be sold to the great Arab cities in North Africa. And there were long caravan routes that took black slaves from West Africa across the Sahara to the uh, thriving markets waiting for them. But in the 1400s, a funny thing happened. A tribe called the Tuaregs uh, rebelled against whoever had been ruling them and cut the uh, caravan lines between northern Africa and the West Coast. So now the kings of the West Coast were completely without any market for their wares. And they got kind of plugged up with excess merchandise. Mm. But then the gods of commerce smiled upon them and the white sails of the Europeans appeared. And much to the joy of the little kings of West Africa, a new market appeared. Why did it appear? Well, because... First the Portuguese, and then the Spanish, and the Dutch, and the English, and the French. We're busy settling the West Indies and what became the American South and the Caribbean coast of North America. The Indians did not work very well as involuntary labor. And the slaves were conceived of initially as a way to relieve the strain on the Indians. Hmm. Also, in uh, initially... It wasn't just black slaves who were brought over. Under Cromwell, a lot of Irish and Scot slaves were brought. There were a lot of those people because of the uh, the wars of the three kingdoms. 
Anyway, long story short, uh, slavery in Protestant versus slavery in Catholic countries became very, very different. In that, in Catholic countries, i.e. France, Spain, and Portugal, there were laws on the books to govern slavery. And certainly with the French, uh, there were a lot of restrictions on what a slave owner could do. Most notably, he had to teach his uh, slaves the Catholic religion. And if he fathered a child on a slave girl, he had to recognize and educate the child as his own. Why was this important? Well, the reason is that in the English colonies, later to become the United States, he could get a better price for slaves with white blood. Hmm. And what that meant was that by the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, a lot of the slaves looked like white people. But what it led to with the French and the Spanish was the rise of a class of free people of color. And these folks, uh, certainly with the French, often had French educations, as in France, and owned plantations and slaves of their own. But from the time that Louisiana came under American control, their position was continually eroded. And then came the Civil War, which kind of destroyed it entirely. And it was only in the 20th century that they began to gain political power in Louisiana. And now, interestingly enough, their descendants have a lot of it again. Hmm. But that, and of course, the uh, the free people of color are, uh, to this day, specifically from Louisiana and to a degree from Maryland, are the backbone of the black, uh, the, the Catholic Church amongst blacks in America. Now then, um, so late as 1867, the uh, uh, what was the the uh, Holy Office now the uh, Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith was asked to rule on slavery. Two years after the defeat of uh, the of the of uh, the Confederacy, rather in our Civil War, but twenty years and more before the abolition of slavery in Brazil, they were asked if slavery was an inherent evil. And the response was, it was not in and of itself an inherent evil. But it gave rise to lots and lots and lots of other evils that had to be dealt with in their own specific term. Uh, The most obvious, of course, is that when someone has the right of life and death over another human being, the temptation to abuse that right in so many ways is huge. And even though the law in Catholic countries forbade all sorts of things to a slave owner, there were certainly those who took advantage. Having said all of that, and having pointed out the difference between slavery in the English-speaking states and slavery elsewhere, one also has to point out something else. And that is that slave revolts in slaveholding countries were always a great danger. There was the big one in Haiti in 1792, and there was the famous Nat Turner Rebellion in Virginia in 1831, where rebelling slaves slaughtered, literally, 67 people, including women and children. Um, the leader of that revolt, Nat Turner, is about to get a statue for himself in Richmond. Hmm. But... Uh, 
having said all of that, by the time of the American Civil War, when the majority of the white Southern population, certainly the slave-owning population, marched off to fight the Yankees, guess who was left behind to look after their plantations and their families? Who? The slaves. How many slave revolts were there during the Civil War? Probably none. Correct. Now, I'm not going to presume to explain that little factoid. It's just a matter of record. Does that by itself mean that slavery was a good thing? No. But it does mean that, like any other human institution, which in and of itself is good or bad, on the actual level where human people lived, human beings worked with it, dealt with it. And some of them were Simon Legree, some of them were Mrs. O'Hara, and probably most of them were in between. Uh, I've been working on a book uh, that I came across in your bibliography. Um, I happen to, we have, have it at our house, The Framework of a Christian State. This is, yep. uh, I think, written in 1920, but I've been working on it. And uh, it had an interesting, uh, I mean, it talks about these some of these tough issues here, with slavery and usury. And, yep. um, you know, it, uh, it's written by Father Cahill, and, uh, who was a, a Jesuit at the time. But I guess that's before the Jesuits uh, got clearly, cray-cray. Clearly, yeah, before they went cray cray. But he, you know, he says uh, the the slave question was the most troublesome, troublesome and thorny issue of all the difficulties that the church had to deal with. Sure. And then he, this is due to the notion of social upheaval, uh, unfortunately, because it was so entrenched that uh, he said hence the church had to proceed slowly and cautiously. Um, but well. See, the question, again, is with revolution. Yeah. What will bring about the the, the greater good? Right. But he does say, uh, it, 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 he, he shows how the church did absolutely always favor the abolition. He says, the liberation of slaves was endowed with special ecclesiastical favor. Yes. It was usual to perform the ceremony of manumission in the church. And the yes. bishop was accorded by civil law special powers to facilitate it. The church also took liberated slaves under her special protection and strictly forbade that they should be in any way again reduced to servitude. Uh, Under the influence of the church, the state also made other enactments to facilitate the manumission of slaves. Uh, The movement was further supported by the example of Christian masters who frequently set free their whole household of slaves. Besides all this, the general attitude of the Christians toward their slaves and towards the poor set an example which profoundly affected the whole tone of Roman society. They're looking at Roman society. Now, here's an interesting um, hypothesis I'd like your opinion on. He, uh, because Father Cahill says, if the Roman state had been allowed to develop on the new lines thus marked out, the 6th century A.D. would probably have seen the complete liberation of the slaves and the establishment of a fully developed Christian social regime. Do you agree with that assessment? That it, yeah, yeah, I would. But you had other things in play, like the barbarian invasions. Right. Uh, he, I think he talks about that, which there are some uh, impediments there in history. Um, yeah. And also, there's something else to be borne in mind. 
And that is, when we look at slavery, we tend to look at it entirely, again, through the prism of American eyes. Now, there certainly is no doubt that the church favored abolition, but they always favored it in a gradual manner without, with as undue a disruption of life as possible. I mean, if you compare how slavery ended in the West Indies with the way it was ended in the United States, uh, it's hugely different. Yeah, because yeah. the British, the French, the Dutch, and the Danes did so gradually. They did so in such a way to try to keep the... Um, the uh, slaves are being sort of thrown on the job market with no skills and nothing uh, with, to keep the planters from going bankrupt. Yeah. Any, any one of which would have really ruined the economy of the islands. Uh, they had to be very careful with the way it was done. And mind you, the way they did it was far from perfect, but it was head and shoulders over the reconstruction becomes Jim Crow the way we did it. Yeah. So, um, so long story short, abolition is absolutely the ideal. It's great. Just don't do it in such a way that it absolutely destroys society. Right? No. <laughs> and that it makes the lives of the slaves worse than they were as slaves. That too. Yeah, they're looking out. Yeah, there you go. See, you see it, you see it as the revolution. Uh, as the church's uh, teaching on just revolt or just war. Don't do anything that will make it worse. I know this is a hard idea for us to wrap our heads around because the way we do things today is we smash things up and hope for the best. And then don't understand why there are bad consequences. Well, okay. As my late father used to say, when you're stupid, bad things happen. It's true. They do. So, whenever you're going to do something with vast repercussions, overthrow a government, go to war against somebody, completely alter a centuries-old institution that is part of the warp and woof of your society, do so carefully. Don't do it if you're going to make things worse. And if you are going to do it, try to lessen the pain as much as possible. I know, hard idea, because we want it now, and we don't care if it's never worked. We want it our way, and we want it this moment. Well, you can do that. Downside is that nature will always say, and punish you in bad ways. People will react in ways you weren't expecting. Badness can happen, even sometimes to you. But it wasn't supposed to happen that way. I know. So yeah. we need a. We need a. We need a. That's what our country needs. We need a, some solidarity against badness. No, badness is my right. I'm a free, sovereign individual, and I can be as bad as I want. Michael Jackson sang an anthem to bad. 
I like I love your your dad's expression when your stupid bad things happen. I first I encountered like a different version of it that I that I also very much enjoy. It was like a meme. You know how there's um some of these like Protestant or evangelical churches have like you know a whiteboard out in the open and they have some saying, some trite saying. Um, yeah. Well, on on this meme, uh, actually I think it was legit. I think it was a legit sign. It says uh, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions. <laughs> this is true. This is true. And it it's something that we, we tend we tend to forget. Yeah. I mean one thing is and part of it is because of our national revolutionary mystique. We tend to think that revolutions, unless it's Pinochet or Franco, are bad. I'm sorry. Are good. Are good, yeah. If it's Pinochet or Franco, it's bad, obviously. Yeah. Because it's trying to restore something. But if it's trying to throw things up and break things up, we think it's a good idea. The problem is, in the real world, where people live, there's always a price to be paid. And it usually is not the people, though sometimes it is, as Robespierre could tell you. Usually it's not the people cause the, the stirring up that end up paying the bill. But that, that conflicts with one of my favorite sayings of you, the revolution always eats its children. It does, but not always at once. Mm. In other words, usually they, they don't end as Robespierre. The children end up as stupid degenerates or they die. I mean... Robespierre's children would have da ta ta. Instead, yeah. he got it. Yeah. And the revolution does eat its children because it's a force. It, it revolutions are like fire. You may think you can control them, <laughs> but a lot of the time you can't. Okay, so that'll do it for this episode. We now to the book, or well. Today we actually uh, it's the first time we don't have a book. We're we going to be promoting. Book, you sell books. You must have a book I somewhere. I sell a book, but you know my largesse knows no bounds. You know, um, you know. Have you ever heard of the saying "philanthropy is the gateway to, to power"? I believe uh, there's something to that. You know. So anyhow, <laughs> anyhow, no, that, that was just a side. Um, <laughs> But so I, I want to promote a publication which I am a huge fan of, the Catholic Herald. Oh, the Catholic Herald. Yes, this is the only Catholic publication that I've ever paid money for, or subscribed to in my uh, my young adult life. Um, I uh, you write for it. You write yes, several columns. We got. Uh, let's see. What do we got here? We got. Um, one of your columns, it's interesting because I didn't know you did this initially, uh, but then I found out it, uh, later that it's you. It is, let's see here, let's see if we can get this, Heretic heretic of the Week. Oh, uh, yeah, see, that's Heretic me. of the Week Charles is, Charles. how do you pronounce that? Philip uh, Mellon? Yeah, there you go, but Charles Coulomb. And cute little cute little segment, Heretic of the Week, um, that I think everyone appreciates. Um and but you also have a normal, I guess, a bi bi weekly column, column, yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, I just, uh, for me personally, obviously, I can't speak for Charles, but for me personally, this publication, 
closest represents my worldview. Um, I I find myself uh, very much um, in agreement with a lot with practically every every article. Uh, they have and they have interesting articles too. They have um, I think I think a lot of publications are having trouble connecting with the youth. Um, but here's here's a here's a cute one. Um, let's see here. Whoop. The woke get the parody they deserve on our on our buddy Justin Bieber Trudeau. So you have uh, that. You have um you have another one. You have an interesting critique of Game of Thrones, which I thought is is very interesting. A world without a redeemer. I never yeah. thought of that. I th- that's a very important critique. It's like uh, you know, Christ never happened. There is no good Samaritan. There is none of this. This is a world without Christ, and yet, yeah, it's, and yet, it's supposed to be a critique on medieval uh, ways. Well, you know, there's, there's a couple important things absent here. Uh, <laughs> well, the Chief Sparrow was there until he got blown up. Yeah, the Chief Sparrow, and so George R. R. Martin. Gosh, but anyhow. Um, Shame. 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 You know, Shame. On, a, on a personal level, too, he's kind of going, you know, with the beard. Um, you know, whenever I see an old gentleman with a beard like that, I I just think of he's a poor man's Professor Beersack. Because, like, they're trying to be cool. They're, they've got this kind of cool look. But nobody no. can be as cool as Professor Beersack with the beard. I mean, let's be real here. Let's be honest. No. Well, Bill's always been cool. He was cool before he was a professor. Yeah, and he's been he he's been doing beards before it was cool to have a beard. I mean, come on. He was doing beards before he had gray hair. There you go. There you go. I mean, he uh, he as as the Rolling Stones said about him many years ago, he was there, man. He was there. Yeah, he was there. He was there, man. Oh. <laughs> but um. So we've got there. There, there's a lot of uh, prestigious writers for Catholic Herald. Um, Sorab Amari, who's also got, I think, a couple books out. You have a couple prominent priests. Uh, some people are very much a fan of Tim Stanley. Yeah. Uh, so you've got you've got a lot of uh, very prestigious writers, and I I read this every every single week it comes out. I I look forward to it, and so. Um, as a as a writer of this publication, are you? Uh, what what are your thoughts, Charles? Well, I'm, oddly enough, I'm in favor of it. But um, anybody who pays me off, believe me, I'm all for them. But beyond that, and, and I must say that the the topics have allowed me to write about. I, I have to get a kick out of uh, the last column before the current one was on uh, the Renaissance Fair phenomenon. Uh, this past one I did was on. Uh, Easter, on the secular Easter, the American secular Easter. And the next one you'll see from me uh, <laughs> is on uh, on two ladies, uh, two wonderful ladies of our time, uh, Kate Smith and Margaret Sanger. Of course, of course. Yeah, because I said to you, I think in Facebook messages, or I saw the tweet and it was brilliant, where let's knock that Margaret Sanger statue down. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, and that, Parenthood and, and its, you know, founder and all this and that. Let's, yeah, let's look at this, shall we? If they want racism, if they want to knock down statues of racist chicks, they need to start with Margaret Sanger. She has at least three I know of. One in the Smithsonian, one at Boston's Old South Meeting House, 
as a symbol of freedom, of course, course. and at Rowan University. So I'm telling you, any Catholic who's anywhere near the Smithsonian, Old South Meeting meeting, uh, Meeting Hall, or Rowan University, you got to get out there and start protesting the racism. And what, what, what are people going to say? Oh, no, she wasn't racist. Oh, no. I mean, yeah, that's I, what they'll I, say. <laughs> oh, no, it's been exaggerated. She was actually in favor of minorities. Yeah, she was in favor of their being extinct. Morons. The thing is, of course, Planned Parenthood has big coffers. And there are a lot of uh, leaders in and out of non-white communities. So, have been paid off. You, you know what I'd say to all this because I, I looked up the numbers uh, of total of um, of the current African American population and uh, the number of abortions for African Americans. And I would ask these people, "Oh, are you pro-choice? Because if it wasn't for abortion, uh, there'd be thirty percent more African Americans in this country. Is that why you're pro-choice? Because that's that's what's happening." Right, so is is that why you do that? Is it because you you have this racist thing going on? You know, I'm just asking a question. I just want to understand you. You know, see, I I, get... I, I I wonder what they would react. I wonder what they would say to that. Uh, <laughs> like, no, they'd be very unhappy with you. They'd be very unhappy. Yeah, uh, no, yeah. Uh, in the what, what the words of your nephew, I don't like what you're saying, so it's a lie. Um. Absolutely. <laughs> he's, and he's here right now, so he's, he's opinion. He's actually coming with me to Budapest. No, you need a, yeah, you need a little com- a companion. That should be fun. Yeah, well, Albert he, is great fun. He is. And not only is he great fun, but he's going to be going back in a couple of weeks. So you'll be able to pump him for information on your ancestral homeland. Excellent. Yeah, the Hungarian side. Yeah. That quarter of you will be bubbling like goulash to find out what the story is. <laughs> Very good. Oh, um, one last thing I, I just like to say, because uh, I plug this so hard. I, I just want, want to say that this was not a paid or solicited door. Catholic Herald didn't even ask me to do this. This is no. completely 100% on my own accord. I didn't get a dime. I'm not selling these. This is just something I believe in. So if it seemed a little too, uh, I don't know, uh, like a paid endorsement, that that was not the case. Um, well, and to be frank about it, speaking, even though I'm writing for it, so I'm a little prejudiced yeah. because, uh, believe me, every uh, every uh, copy you buy to read my stuff is a real plug for me. But that aside, uh, it, it's a fresh magazine. It it fills the spot that no other Catholic publication in the states does. Uh, it's a magazine, number one. The closest, the, the, I think the closest thing I could say that would compare to it would be an Orthodox Commonweal or America. Interesting. If either of those were Catholic publications, they'd be like the Herald. I, I, I have no experience with uh, Commonweal. That's, uh, that's Common, Commonweal, the funny, funny thing about Commonweal, it was co-founded by Ralph Adams Cram, one of my favorite people. Oh. And it was very much a Catholic intellectual voice in a time when there weren't any. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, most of its founders were converts, not surprisingly. But at the risk of, of confessing a family secret, my grandfather wrote for Commonweal. Ah. Uh. 
but he broke with them over the Spanish Civil War because they were against Franco and he supported Franco. And this bore fruit many, many years later. This was my first book came out in 1985. Grandpa's still being alive then. I went to Commonwealth to see if I could get a book review. Mm-hmm. I was in New York. And I, said, I had sent the thing to them. And I called to set up an appointment with their book reviewer. And the lady at the desk at the phone said, uh, yeah, Mr. Coulomb, our publisher, Mr. Skillen, would like to meet you. He's been here since 1933 and remembers your grandfather. Oh, wow. That's what I said. And then I said, well, okay. Now, I knew from my grandfather what an unpleasant breakup it had been. So uh, I went in. I went into the office. This little old man comes out and he says, well, Mr. Coulomb, I remember your grandfather very, very well. But he wanted to be nice. He was as smooth as silk. When he wanted to be nasty, he was as nasty as nasty can be. And I said, yes, sir. It's a family tradition. Mm. So he uh, didn't really want to say too much more to me. But I didn't get the review. But I will say that I was able to tell my grandfather that story. And he laughed very, very hard. So, very nice. He uh, he thought it was funny, and he said, "Well, I'm not surprised." I said, uh, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, for some reason, Skillen always seemed a little bit frightened when I yelled at him." <laughs> okay, so I just looked up the price uh, um, for for Catholic Herald. It's a hundred five dollars for fifty one issues every single week. So it's two dollars an issue. Uh, it's $120 for the web, uh, so it's $15 more if you also want the website access for it. Uh, to me, that's very economical for the entire year, um, especially considering every single week. And it's a very quality uh, publication. You know, it's not it's not like a newspaper. It's a really nice magazine. So sign up, join up, enjoy. Enjoy Charles's biweekly column and his weekly heretic. Uh, yes. <laughs> And I, I'm, you know what? I'm probably telling stories out of school, but I'm willing to reveal to you the next heretic of the week whom I have just sent in. Who is that? Rudolf Steiner. Okay, I'm scared to ask, but who, who the is founder that? of Anthroposophy. Anthroposophy. Now, you've never heard of Anthroposophy, but have you heard of the Waldorf schools? The hotel? No, not the hotel. No relation <laughs> to the hotel at all. The Waldorf schools. No. Well, when you get off the podcast, look up Waldorf schools. The whole It's a whole kind of education, like Montessori education, that Rudolf Steiner came up with. And they're actually far more successful than the Anthropo- Anthroposophical Society itself, although it does have a branch in Pasadena. And you know having a branch in Pasadena means you've really made it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you're doing a heretic of the week every week. I mean, how long can this last? I mean, surely you'll run out of heretics quickly. In this Not, a Not a Not chance. Not a chance. Just keep on going continuously, perpetually, indefinitely. Just... Indefinitely. <laughs> I mean, you have no idea how many people. Look, from Simon Magus to 
Tell her to Chardin or Carl Rana. There are literally... Uh, Whoa, Char- I, Dave Chardin. Okay, hold the phone here. He signed what? the thing. I thought he signed the thing because given the nature of his evolution stuff, they're like, okay, uh, you're treading dangerously close to, you know, contradicting the concept of original sin. And I thought he signed, at least. I thought he signed the thing where it's like, no, I accept all these these uh, these beliefs. Well, and I won't profile because oh. that's my rule. If somebody has reneged on their heresy, then I don't profile them. They okay. don't make it. Yeah. So I probably will never do Carl Rahner because he was not formally condemned. Not yet, anyway. We'll see what the next pontificate brings. Yeah, and Deshaun is not even formally condemned. I, you know, priests are still spouting Deschardins at the certain parishes. Yeah, well, senility is a terrible... Early onset senility is a terrible thing in priests. But, having said that, uh, I did... uh, I will probably uh, deal with Father Matthew Fox someday. Okay. I don't... Creation, Creation, spirituality, man. Still alive, ended up as an Episcopal priest. I dealt with Bishop Pike some time ago. He was fun. Okay. I have a preference for people who start out as Catholics. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. But not always. So I've done Joseph Smith. I did the Fox Sisters who gave us spiritualism. You know, seances and all that. Yeah, You know what you should do? You know what I'd like you to do? Uh, we, we did one of the talks. The Divine, divine Will. Divine will, that's right, divine will. I can't because it hasn't been properly condemned. Oh, okay. See, that's the thing. I Now, I did the Mariavites and the Antronists. Now, they were properly condemned. And it's it's got to be a heresy that sort of leaps out at you. Divine will leaps out at me. <laughs> I'm nah, not going to lie. That, that's one. That'd be leaping out at too. you. I mean, where you get you acquire the divine will and then you never sin again. And that it doesn't her, her book is going to be right aside of the Bible, and she's going to be right aside of St. Peter or Paul or whatever. Like, okay, whoa. Yeah, that's whoa. tough, but it's, it's never been condemned. Not formally, anyway. I wish, you know, if, as I say, I hope to live long enough and still be doing the column to where I can do all these guys, but then I'll have to wait for another pontificate. <laughs> Yeah. Remember that that in this in this pontificate, no heresy gets condemned. Yeah. No. I I I asked the question. Well, I mean, even before this pontificate, to be honest. I oh, better they condemn two people. I guess, but I mean, wasn't Mahoney under Benedict, and Mahoney was still doing stuff? I don't know. Well, the thing is that Mahoney was never formally charged with heresy. Uh. I mean, well, if I is? were doing... See, that's the thing. That, that's my point. That's my point. Under Benedict, who was? Well, several people were. Uh, the the um, uh, liberation theology people. Well, that's good. A couple of others. Um, there were a few. I mean, if you go on the Vatican website and you go to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, they have a list of all the condemnations over the past several pontificates. You'll see there are quite a few, actually. Okay. We just... You didn't hear about them, but they happened. In America? I don't remember. Because that's where the big money is, you see? 
that may be why is. I don't remember. Yeah, money talks, you see. And faith walks, yeah. Yeah. Money talks and faith walks. I, huh? I, I want to see. I want to see. I don't know. No, you don't. No, I don't. All you want to see is love and joy. Love and joy. That's all you need. As uh, yeah. That's all I need. As Paul says, you know, all you need is love. That's right. Paul uh, McCartney. One of the... uh, One of them Pauls. (laughs) Maybe the Paul Bearer. I don't know. (sighs) Okay, so any any closing remarks? Well, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Stay sane inside insanity? Oh, yes. Other than that, of course. Well, other than that, which is a constant, uh, I mean, I, I would, I would get up like Columbia and stop to start tap dancing, but that would look bad. <laughs> like Columbia? What, wait, that, what? Yeah, she was the figure in Rocky Horror Picture Show who sang that. Yeah. But I don't have what she had was sort of a gold sequiny tailcoat and top hat and mesh stockings, and she tap danced. And... Right. She did. I, what wasn't that show on? Wasn't that movie on the index? Like when there was an index? I mean, come on. No, it wasn't. No, I can't recommend. Oh, it. then it's okay. Then it's perfect. Oh, it wasn't on the index. Perfect. I good. can't. I can't recommend it. But what I can say about it is that it certainly is a chilling commentary on modern American life. No, seriously. Uh, I would say, all things considered. My valediction, if you will, my farewell before I depart once more for Budapest, is that um, teach your children about communism, (laughs) what it was. People simply have forgotten how horrendous communism was. They somehow remember the Nazis, even though the communist body count was many times Hitler's paltry 11 million. Uh, We don't have the same visceral disgust that we're trained to have for the Nazis and we definitely should and must regain it uh, the very question of Frank or Pinochet should never come up and it didn't during the Cold War for the simple reason that we knew what was going on behind the Iron Curtain And when the Iron Curtain fell, we found out that it was far worse than we had ever thought. Not only was it terrible in in human terms, but one of the ways that the the Soviet bloc successfully bamboozled the moronic creatures that we call the media uh, was in giving the impression that at least, while they might not have been really wonderful on human rights, they were very good with the environment. I'm not joking. And you know what? What did we find out when the uh, Soviet bloc fell? It was a horror. Their environmental policies were as terrible as everything else. It's like in China today. And that, 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 that unmitigated moron, our former governor, Brown, came back from China yapping about how, how uh, their environmental policies were you know, uh, uh, something for all the world to follow. I thought to myself, where, where, who does this guy's material? So, I'm telling you, if I can give you a valediction, ladies and gentlemen, learn about communism if you don't remember. Teach your chillins if 
they don't know. Because we are going in that direction now. It would be far better. I mean, the worst much I can promise you. If we go communist, we'll come through it eventually. What I can't promise is what will be left after 40 or 50 or 80 years. Having seen the results over here, I can tell you, that's not a good thing for America to do. It's bad, bad touch, bad touch. Don't do that. And that is my week's benediction for our studio audience. Okay. Um, well, very good, Charles. Uh, eight, eight, eight. Oh, bit. we've got to end on a happy note. We got to end you, you, for for our screen for for my screen. I'm sure the audience, you're like an eight eight bit right now. You're like several pixels, uh, but we can hear you perfectly clear. But uh, it's it's an interesting experience. Well, I can, <laughs> okay. I can I'm, I'm best experienced this way. I can see you need me to leave on an upbeat note. Yeah. All right, I can do this. I can do this. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, that you're not yet being thrown into jail for what you believe or what you say. Let's hope it stays that way. Better? Uh, no, I don't. I don't like that. All right, all right, all right, all right. I'll leave you with this one. You ready? ready. The Easter Bunny was good to me this year. Easter Bunny good. What's in it for us? I mean, okay, that's great for you, but what about what about us, Charles? I mean, that's nice, but come the on. The Easter, the Easter Bunny loves all of you equally. Equally. Yeah. I mean, it's the Easter Bunny loves. I mean, that's better. I mean, can we get something more tangible? Uh, love. I mean, love. I mean, that's so intangible. You know. All I mean, right. All right. Only 125 more shopping days until Christmas. Okay, that's pretty good. That's there. pretty good. There we go. Okay. Feeling better? I'm feeling good now. I'm excited now. All right. You've got something to live for. Actually, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> What's sad is there's some truth in that, like in terms of what actually hits. Uh well, look, if it makes you feel any better this coming week, you've got Valpurgisnacht, where they'll be lighting bonfires to keep the witches from landing, followed by May Day, where they'll be dancing around maypoles all over the place here. The witches? No, not the witches. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. You, you I said mean, they, because you said witches, and then, well, then they makeups, and they're all dancing around <laughs> the well, maybe the witches will be doing it. I don't know. Okay. I, if if uh, the ones that the ones that didn't go in for crash landings the night before and land <laughs> burnt up in the bonfires, but no, uh, no, we'll have the uh, we'll have the uh, listen closely. I got it for us now. We're all set. Okay. I got it. Got this. All right. Remember, Valpurgisnacht is coming when we burn the bonfires to drive off the witches. But the following day is May. Well, Pugestacht is May Eve. Then comes May Day, May 1st, the month of Mary. There'll be May crownings, not just here, but in the States and all over the place. The month of Mary, the most beautiful month. May is coming. And with May, 
we're going to have uh, Pentecost. Oh, no, Pentecost will be in June, I guess. But the Ascension is coming. Memorial Day. Memorial Day is coming. We'll be able to celebrate our gallant dead who fell in all this country's wars and so forth. And, and wait, there's more. After that comes June and summer. And all you chillins watching this, from college down to kindergarten, you know what that means. At least three months of freedom. The 4th of July and Dominion Day and, and, and uh, Corpus Christi, the processions and all that. And wait, wait, there's more. Because August will come again. And then the autumn. And you know what that means. Halloween is coming. Mm. And then Thanksgiving and Christmas again, and New Year's and Mardi Gras and Lent and Easter. And so it will go, ladies and gentlemen, and so it will go. That's always something to look forward to. And on the 4th of July, when you're having your barbecues and waving your flags and, 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 and watching the parades and the speeches and the fireworks and all that, remember there's a good chance I'll still be over here. And if I am, You'll be indulging in folk customs, and I won't be. So if I'm not here, if I'm not, if I'm not there, come the 4th of July, this is one you'll have over me. Is that better? That's better. That's better, Charles. You're good More at that. More tantrum? Yeah, no, that, that's good. That's good. We're happy. Okay, so... That'll do it for this episode. Um, if you enjoyed listening to Charles, you can send us a question uh, to be asked on the show through uh, our website, the Contact Us page on our website. I've asked every single question from a patron. You can become a patron for as low as a dollar a month, get early access. Uh, and that'll do it. And uh, remember, if it's Monday, it's off the menu. And the soul you save may be your own.